welcome to use electronic devices do the needful just if you're uh, doing so any declarations of financial or other relevant interests to today's business now is the time to declare it if not we shall proceed um, members content then we'll get oral evidence on the damages return investment bill and protection bill to be reported by Hansard um, members will suspend the meeting after the oral evidence session with the Association of Personal Injury Lawyers, and that will facilitate a short lunch. So that'll just be subject to how quickly or otherwise we get through today's business. We have apologies from a number of members. Um, Doug Beatty plans to attend from two o'clock. Uh, I know Paul Frew is um, currently in a, another meeting, um, and will we'll join late. Emma Rogan has an apology, in, and then. Uh, Gordon Dunn has an apology, and I suppose if I can just take an opportunity at this stage to thank Gordon for the work that he has put in on this committee. Um, it's been a privilege for me to, to be able to work alongside him, not just on Justice Committee, but on other committees and within this Assembly, and obviously he's announced that he's going to be uh, stepping down as an MLA, and I just want to record my appreciation for all of his efforts. Um, so we're joined then uh, by the Starley facility, by Linda, Sinead, Rachel, Rachel and Gemma, and I'll bring members in just shortly once the clerk advises of any delegation of votes, and then I'll, I'll bring Linda in. Thank you, Chair. Uh, Gordon Dunn has delegated his vote to the Chairman, Paul Given, and Emma Rogan has delegated her vote to the Deputy Chairperson, Linda Dillon. Linda. Thank you, Chair. Just wanted to also place on the record my thanks to Gordon for his time on the committee and just to say that I wish him a full recovery and wish him all the, him and his family all the best in the future. And I certainly hope that he does have a full recovery and our thoughts are with him. Yeah, thank you, Linda. And Rachel? Thank you, Chair. Yes, um, just to echo those sentiments. Obviously, um, Gordon is a North Down colleague as well, and it's been um, a real pleasure to be on the Justice Committee with him. Um, and certainly, I've enjoyed my time with him, and, and a very short time, uh, granted, but certainly, you know, standing down after 36 years of service for North Down, and I think I do I certainly echo the comments of everybody and um, the, the sentiment that he makes a very, very full and quick recovery. Okay, well, listen, thank you. And if, if members are, are agreeable, we, we, I could send a letter on behalf of the committee just thanking Gordon um, for his service, if members are content with that, and we'll relay the comments that have been made to him. So thank you. Agreed. Okay, um, item two, draft minutes of the meeting that was held on the 3rd of June. If members are content that there are true reflection of proceedings, then I'll be able to sign them accordingly. Members agreed? Agreed. Some matters are rising. Um, the Committee for Finance has written to all of the statutory committees providing the monthly forecast outturn data for March 2021, which shows some very significant end-of-year surges in respect of both capital and resources. Uh, following the evidence session on the June monitoring round at last week's meeting, the Committee has written to the Department on a number of issues, including information for the reasons of this apparent end-year surge in both resource and capital expenditure, so we are awaiting responses uh, to that. Another item was just the deferral of a written briefing paper. Um, the Department has asked to defer the paper on the Programme for Government 2021 Draft DOJ Action Plan, which is scheduled on the work programme for next week's meeting, 
as the final outcomes framework has yet to be approved by the Executive following the public consultation exercise. Therefore, the Department is unable to provide an update. In its place, the Department would like to schedule a briefing paper on a proposed statutory rule which relates to the proceeds of a Crime Act. So, If members are agreeable, we will change the forward work programme to re reflect this request. Members content? Okay, thank you. Okay, item four then is the um, first oral evidence session from the Forum of Injury Lawyers and Confederation of British Industry, Northern Ireland, uh, the CBI. So there's a paper setting out the issues that the committee may wish to explore uh, during these four evidence sessions, and it's in your table to pack. So we've got representatives joining the meeting via the Starley facility. Uh, a copy of the joint written submission um, and other relevant papers are um, in the uh, meeting pack. So can I welcome uh, Kevin Shevlin from FOIL and Stuart Anderson, Senior Policy Advisor for CBI-NI, to the meeting. We'll report this via Hansard and publish it in uh, the committee webpage in due course. So if I can hand over to Kevin and Stuart just to give us a brief outline of uh, their issues that we already have in the written submission, and then we'll turn to members for some questions. Thank you. Uh, good morning, Chair. It's Kevin Shevlin here. Uh, first of all, thank you very much to the Chair and to the Committee for giving us the opportunity to uh, speak to you this morning. Um, you already have our uh, response um, to, to the uh, call for evidence, so we will not go through the, in any great detail. Uh, what we'd like to do is give the Committee every opportunity to ask questions, which we think would be far more constructive. But just a few opening remarks, and then Stuart, no doubt, will have a few more to add. Um, just to say at the outset, FOIL acknowledge that the proposed bill, which is based on the Scottish uh, framework, is infinitely preferable to the current uh, model for uh, setting the rate in Northern Ireland, which is still based on the Wales and Wales uh, House of Lords decision. Uh, and as you know, um, that has recently been set by second legislation at the 31st of May at minus 1.75%. So FOIL acknowledged that uh, the steps being taken by the department and supported by the uh, committee um, is very timely and very necessary. And we fully support that and the move to reform what is an outdated, um, not fit for purpose, uh, Wales and Wales model. Now, in FOIL's response to the call for evidence, um, we accepted that whilst the model was not what we had sought, uh, we, along with other representatives on what might be seen to be the defence or the insurer's side of the argument, um, had uh, looked to the English model uh, set up under the Civil Liability Act. Now, obviously, in the statutory consultation, there were two models offered, the Scottish and the English, and the department went forward with a proposal based on the Scottish model with a few um, slight uh, changes which we'll deal with later. But in saying all of that, whilst it's not our preferred choice, it is one which uh, FOIL uh, are now fully behind the uh, Department and the uh, Justice Committee uh, to bring that forward uh, in a way that will deliver 100% uh, compensation for um, the um, for injured uh, claimants who have suffered injuries through no fault of their own. Uh, the one thing we would say in these opening remarks is that I think both sides of the debate fully support the 100% rule, uh, which is a rule that will ensure that injured plaintiffs, injured through no fault of their own, achieve 
what they deserve, essentially put back in the position they were before the accident, and that means full compensation. But it also means the definition is important to understand that, and I'm sure the committee do, as we've seen from conversations with the committee members before, it is to compensate the plaintiff in full for his losses throughout the period of time during which those losses will fall. But it is no more and no less than that. So that's where we get into discussions around the risks of overcompensation and undercompensation, which have taken up so much of the time, but necessary time, we think. So the current rate, we think, carries with it a significant risk of overcompensation. And what I mean by the current rate being that just announced at minus 1.75%. We're not going to spend very much time on it because this discussion is around the new model, which is the Scottish model. What's important to understand that as that presently stands, it's now in force as our current um, personal injury discount rate in Northern Ireland, minus 1.75%. Now, that's been referred to at times as an interim rate, and uh, certainly Ford would welcome that if it is, in fact, an interim rate, in fact, a, a very short interim rate. But the reality is, unless and until the reform bill or something similar is on the statute book and GAD then gives effect to it, by striking a new rate, that rate I think would be better described as an indefinite rate rather than an interim rate, because unless and until um, we know what is coming and when it's coming, um, there is the difficulty that we will have a minus 1.75% uh, discount rate for what may be a considerable period of time, and that will cause significant difficulties. Um, we have, we have other uh, remarks which we're happy to, other issues we're happy to deal with in some more depth uh, with the committee. No doubt we'll have questions, but if I could hand over to Stuart. Uh, thanks, Kevin, and good, good morning, everyone. Um, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. And maybe just, just, just to clarify, CBI made a separate submission um, to FOIL to this uh, to this particular um, stage, and, and, and just wanted to clarify that from the outset, and it is is available on on your website i think uh, chair as well just just from the outset on a personal note just um just would want to offer my sincere congratulations to you um on your nomination and uh and and, and best wishes as you take up um this this new role in the coming weeks and months and no doubt the opportunities um and challenges that inevitably come with that but also just to place on record our thanks to you for how you've you've navigated through this complex complex issue um, over the course of the last year or so, and no doubt you will, will continue um, to, to, to be involved in the process. Um, I think it's important that the voice of business is heard in this debate and in this conversation about the reform of of, of the discount rate. From our perspective, I, I'm the senior policy advisor here to the CBI in Northern Ireland, but as an organization, we represent 190,000 businesses across the UK, um, and we are the largest business representative organization um, in the UK, and that includes some of our smallest startups and, and, and SMEs right through to some of the UK's um, largest employers. So um, we come at it from a unique, holistic perspective, from an industry-wide perspective, and I think it's important to, to bring that voice into the debate. I think the process um, for setting this new rate and this discussion around a new framework and indeed the interim rate comes at a really critical time for North, the North, Northern Ireland business community. As we navigate through what is well known, the implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol, recovery from COVID-19, and the soaring costs of, of raw materials and commodity prices at this particular time, 
I think as a cross-sector business organization, what we want to do is, an ensure, is ensure that the framework is developed that avoids imposing additional costs on local businesses, on consumers, and indeed the public purse as a consequence of potentially legislating um, for over, for in, in a way that may veer towards overcompensation, and in particularly to, 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 to challenge the current uh, rate that is under the methodology of Wells v. Wells. I think it's well known that getting this wrong um, could have an impact on every household. Historically, Northern Ireland, for various reasons, has had to manage higher prices for retail insurance compared with the rest of the UK. And putting that into context, Northern Ireland households have half the discretionary income of the UK average. So as a society, we are not well placed to absorb additional costs. From a business perspective as well, I think we need to be very clear that this is not an issue on the hearts of the Northern Ireland business community at large. There's not a great awareness about this and the risk that it poses in terms of, uh, in terms of additional costs or indeed additional risk. Um, and I think that's most clear in the fact that there isn't a, a wide range of responses received from wider industry um, to this consultation and, and we hope to elevate um, the debate through our own submissions. We also are very clear and do fully support the department and the, their commitment to the overarching principle um, of 100% compensation um, for claimants. But while the, the, the Scottish model that is proposed here by the department isn't our preference, and I think we've been clear around that, the proposals are much better and with a, with a question fairer than the model that is presented under Wells v Wells, which is currently resulting in the lowest discount rate anywhere in the world and that is wholly inconsistent with any other part of the UK. In representing the business community, I think I want to, to be clear around what our top priorities are in this engagement. Um, and I think from the fir firstly, it is that not only do we want this issue to be approached with the appropriate degree of due diligence, but that the urgency is applied to find that stable and predictable rate to replace the existing flawed methodology through Wells v Wells. I also want to ensure that the implications for the cost of business the public purse and wider societal implications are properly understood in what it, in, in, in the process of developing a new framework and would like to have seen uh, a much more fulsome uh, impacts, impact assessment carried out in the process. And I think in terms of turning to the very specifics um, of the bill itself, in guarding against overcompensation and, and assuming a, a strong presumption against overcompensation, we would like to see a very clear evidence base for the notional investment portfolio that is put forward to ensure that it's appropriate and fit for purpose. And also that the additional just adjustment of, 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 of minus 0.5%, um, which the Scottish government admit inevitably will lead to overcompensation um, is removed from the model. And I'll leave it there for further questions. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you, thank you, Kevin and Stuart, and uh, thanks for those kind comments. Uh, in terms of then just homing in on a couple of the key points as I see it at this stage, I think you know, th th this bill, in all likelihood, will get support. But um, it's whether or not there are some aspects of the Scottish model that um, we we want to consider. And and for me, there's two key points in it. Um, one is the the decision making process around who actually strikes the rate. Should it be a minister or should it be GAD or, or some um, notionally independent body? Because I think that's always very difficult to get true independence. Um, and also then this inbuilt um, additional factor to make sure that there's never undercompensation. And I think, Stuart, that's where you finished on the potential for the overcompensation. Is that really where the, the, the two key issues lie? 
Um, or, or is there an additional aspect that um, to do with the the way in which the investment model is calculated? Scotland, I think it was um, 30 years, uh, and this proposal is is it 40, 42 years? Um, anyway, it's, it's it's significantly different. Do you want to just pick up on those three general points for me? Yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll go first, and, and then maybe let Kevin uh, come in. Yeah, I think I think that 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 that's correct. I think the decision-making piece, because our view is that this is a matter of public policy, and um, that it is best placed within the hands of, of a minister, and that ministerial accountability presides over um, that decision-making process. We did. I have referred to the notional investment portfolio um, and, and the need to examine that, and we, we've called to on the department to ensure that that is. That, that that is fit for purpose. And the reason for that is, is that it's described by the Scottish Government in their policy paper as being cautious. Um, and indeed, in a, um, in a submission by the relevant minister uh, to the relevant committee in the Scottish process at the relevant time, he describes it as being very cautious. And I know a, um, the Association of British Insurers are in front of you um, later on, and they, they had actually um, commissioned independent advice in this, and it, the view was that it did veer um, to, to, did veer too too far away from the from the the, 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 the target of, of a low risk investment. So um, while we're not experts in that, we would call on the department to ensure that that is correct and that is upheld in, a, in an appropriate way. In terms of the investment period, yes, we we are we are fully behind the investment period of I, I think it's 40, 43 years because it's based on evidence as opposed to the Scottish position of thirty years, which which seems like an arbitrary figure um, to, to, to to us. So yes, that. that that's correct. There's the three um, main issues that we would pick. Okay. Thank you. I'm happy with those responses. Unless Kevin, do you want to just pick up on the two? Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a, a few few things on that. I think um, the the issue as to who should have the decision making um, powers is really a matter um, that uh, the committee and uh, the executive will need to decide. The the issue is the two models have been portrayed somehow as choices, binary choices, and I'm not so sure that they are, but in a very superficial way, they look as if the Scottish model presents um, a purely an actuarial exercise so that by uh, framing a notional portfolio in the way it is in the bill, you have it set out in terms of the type of investments and the percentage holdings, and then it looks as if that's in the bill, that's what's passed, and therefore over to the government actuary to carry or to, to be the rate assessor, essentially in a very non-partisan, objective uh, way. Um, so that has a certain attraction to it. I think the difficulty is whenever you look at it, there are two things. First of all, is it is it correct that there shouldn't be political oversight of this? And the issue is, at what point should there be political oversight? Um, it seems that with the Scottish model that's proposed, that's happening now, so essentially those issues are being debated now, which is quite why this is quite important now that uh, the Assembly and the Committee have the chance to scrutinise the composition of that notional portfolio, because its composition will in fact dictate to a very large extent the outcome, i.e. what the rate turns out to be. And as Stuart's already said, the... Um, the composition of the notional uh, portfolio, which is used in Scotland and which our draft bill uh, copies completely, so it's word for word the same, is a very cautious um, uh, constructed uh, portfolio. It's certainly not one which um, a prudent advisor uh, would 
uh, an advisor would advise um, an injured claimant. So I think it's quite important to understand that, that by picking the construction of the portfolio, you influence the outcome. So if you're doing that now, those are essentially um, decisions that you're making now that will uh, not decide the outcome because it'll still be for government actuary then to strike the rate based on that, but you're inputting the information <laughs> that he will then be using. So this is quite an important point. The other thing I would say is that in relation to uh, the notion that somehow the Scottish model is preferable because it's the government actually carrying out purely an arithmetical exercise. I, th I think it's important to understand that I think that's maybe a little bit divorced from what actually happens, that even under the Scottish model, uh, the government actuaries department would, would accept and acknowledge that they have to make judgment calls. They have to exercise a degree of discretion, even with the prescription that is within that notional model. So, um, if there's an attraction to the Scottish model because it is taking the, polit the political heat out of the discussion and it's making it's passing it over to, you know, the actuaries in this case, the government actuary. I'm not so sure in reality that is actually what happens. That the government actuary still need to use a large degree of professional uh, discretion and expertise, and they will call on outside expertise as well. Um, one other thing I would say, you had mentioned, uh, Chair, the difference between the 43-year, 30-year um, duration period of notional uh, portfolio in England, Wales and in Scotland. Um, as Stuart quite rightly po uh, points out, the English model at 43 was based on actual evidence and uh, the ABI in particular put forward statistical evidence uh, at the time of the consultation two years ago in England and Wales, which was that... Um, uh, the average life expectancy of a person who has suffered an injury that gave rise to an award of greater than a quarter of a million pounds was 46 years. So therefore, the decision in England Wales to take 43 is at least related to that. The decision in Scotland go with 30, from what I can see, and I don't think we've had any argument or debate in it, is not based on any evidence at all. Mm. Um, final thing I would say is in relation to the... Um, the two standard adjustments, which is whenever the uh, gross rate of return is then struck, so the government actually or whoever strike the rate, and then that's adjusted uh, downward by two adjustments. First of all, 0.75% uh, for the cost of um, um, taxation and investment, and uh, a further margin, or what is called in uh, Scotland uh, a further uh, margin of prudence, uh, one might question whether in fact it is prudence because what is happening here is you have therefore a, a combined adjustment of 1.25% uh, which is a very large uh, combination. So what you're doing is you're driving down um, the gross rate of return so that the net rate is considerably lower than what it would otherwise be. Um, now in fact there is consistency in England, Wales and Scotland because the two jurisdictions under two different models are in fact now applying the same adjustments, both in terms of the cost of investment advice at 0.75 and also the further uh, margin at 0.5. The important distinction, however, is that in the Scottish model it's prescribed and it can only be changed therefore by rule change or by regulation change. In the English model, had it been used, that is entirely at the discretion of the Lord Chancellor and in Northern Ireland parlance, the equivalent of the Lord Chancellor would be the Minister of Justice. 
So other than that, I hope, I hope that assists. Thank you. Okay, let, let me bring in colleagues at this stage. So Linda Dillon, please. Linda in the spotlight now. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to both Kevin and Stuart for the presentation and for answering the questions. Most of my questions, to be fair, have been answered in, in relation to the Chair's um, issues, particularly around the, the 30 and 43 years, and, and it would be my reading of it also that the 43 years is evidenced and the 30 years is not. So um, I, I would accept that there, there could be some argument around that. Just in relation, and I've asked this of, of other people who've come before the committee around in, in relation to evidence, it, it may well be less, um, I suppose, less appropriate for yourselves. But I've asked around the periodical payment orders. Now, I think they're probably better suited to where somebody is, where it's the, the I suppose, the government who are responsible or the, the public services that are responsible for paying out the money, I would be a wee bit nervous about putting it in place where it's a business or where it's an insurance company that could potentially go to the wall at any time and, and then the claimant left. So what, what is your view of, of the of those? Um, if I could, yeah, if I could maybe go first. Um, uh, it's more a direct legal <laughs> question, I, I suppose. Um, PPOs uh, have been about since April 2005, mm -hmm. so they are a new new thing. The reality is that uh, there isn't as great a take-up um, uh, as you might have expected, because yes, you're absolutely right. By uh, choosing a periodical payment order rather than a, a lump sum approach to paying future losses. So mm -hmm. in a, a personal injury case, you have the general damages for the pain and suffering. What we're talking about is the future losses, and the future losses primarily in relation to loss of earnings and care and case management costs. Now, in more, more recent times, the PPOs deal with the care costs uh, mainly and the case management costs. Now, the important point, and um, this, this I know was raised before, uh, how secure, I think your question is, how secure is funds that are dealt with by way of a PPO? Because the difference in a lump sum payment is the defendant makes that payment now, so at the time of the settlement or award, the money's there or else it's not there. There's an insurer behind it, so it is, so it's paid out. And that's a matter for the claimant and his advisors then to manage it. The difference with the PPO is um, that it is there, it's periodic payments, usually yearly, but not, not always. And they're covering usually the annual costs, say for example, of hiring in care workers and then case management costs. So the issue about um, whether an insurer, for example, what happens if the insurer goes bust, that has already been covered off. Um, the period payments uh, provisions came from the 1996 uh, Damages Act, which is a UK-wide act. There was an amendment made in the 1996 uh, Act by the 2003 Courts Act. The 2003 Courts Act is a UK-wide act, and in it, it um, gives further protection. So essentially what it means is that um, any PPOs that are funded uh, by a general insurer uh, which are compulsory insured, and that would be employers' liability cases or uh, motor accident cases. They are secure, they are protected, and they're protected under the Financial Services uh, Compensation Scheme. So that's the FSCCS. Uh, so that's guaranteed, that is protected. So in relation to 
compulsory insured matters that give rise to injuries. That would be, say, for example, you know, a really bad road traffic accident case, mm -hmm. a catastrophic case. Uh, as we all know, drivers, you, uh, you must have motor insurance, and in the absence of motor insurance, then the Motor Insurance Bureau picks up the tab. So that's covered as well. So that's compulsory insurance in relation to road traffic accident cases. FSCS take care of that. In relation to employers' cases, and that would be, say, an accident at work. Say, mm -hmm. some, for example, of course, he gets a, a hand or limb trapped or whatever or fall from height and they suffer serious injuries and they go over work, they have to have care and attention. Those sort of claims are also covered and they're covered under the, the FSCS. There's no doubt about that at all. Okay. That's very helpful um, because it was one of the concerns that I, I would have had in terms of, you know, having put anything around periodic payment orders, but that is, is certainly you're the first person that's been able to enlighten me around that, so I appreciate that. Um, no, I, I think I mean, if there's any, if there's any, if there's any issues that you want to come back, quite happy if you want to submit a further question. You know, this is, you know, you ask me a question and me yeah. responding. I'm quite happy if you want to set this aside for. Would be quite happy, and I'm, I'm sure the following speakers from ABI would be quite happy as well. You know, to give you give you some detail on that, but that is, that is the position. Yeah, no, that that is helpful, and, and we have done an informal session previously with the, the ABI, and I, I'm going to be upfront. I mean. Everybody has a vested interest, but whether that vested interest is from the point of view of, of the injured person or of those who will who will be paying out, there, there are vested interests. So everything I it has to be balanced against both of those those circumstances, and and that's really what I, what I'm trying to do because I, I accept that everybody has to try to protect their own interests, and I accept that you know business has to have a voice in this. And to be fair, up to this point, and I was very to be honest, very vociferous on it, that the Minister had told us we, we could not take anything into account around the, the impact on business, the impact on the health service. We got information last week from a research paper to show that other jurisdictions had not taken that approach. And so I, I think we're probably more open-minded this week. You're lucky we came this week and not two weeks ago, let's go that way. <laughs> <laughs> so look, I, I, I appreciate your answers. and. Thank you for that, Chair. That, that's all I have for now. The other questions I had have been answered by, by your own questions. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Sinead Bradley and then Rachel Wood. Thank you, Chair, and thanks to Stuart and Kevin. Chair, if we could just take a minute also at the start uh, to apologise. I was in the meeting, but I didn't appear to get into the spotlight and I didn't get an opportunity to uh, wish Gordon well. And I'd like to put that on record. I'm, I'm thinking of Gordon and his family wishing a speedy recovery. Thanks, Julia. Um, could I then, Stuart and Kevin, your submission, I have to say, is quite detailed and the conversation so far has uh, reached in areas I would have liked to consider. And Linda rightly brought up uh, the PPOs, which were, I suppose, thoughts are sort of maturing around, uh, particularly around pu public bodies. But um, I suppose I am still a little bit jarred by the actual process we're following here. So I do accept what the minister was saying in terms of our target is 100% and you know none of us should be influenced by any noise around that you know because you either hit the 100% or you don't and um, but then that's not an exact science as we've come to learn and you know we're talking about notional ideas of portfolios and all of that that comes with it but to my mind and um, when I look at your submission if my reading of it is correct you 
do you do uh, have some concerns about the actual role of the government actuaries? Now, I also appreciate that we possibly don't have that level of expertise within even our Northern Ireland civil service. So the government actuaries does seem to be a healthy place to offer a service that we otherwise wouldn't have access to. But I do take your point that once referencing that expertise, you've made the consideration that there may be decisions within the process that it's not an exact science or some game, that there may be considerations that you would arguably say may be political. And without knowing in detail the process, and I think that's something, Chair, that we possibly could explore more, is what exactly the government actuaries are being tasked to do. Could you give an example of what you think GAD might have to consider? that you would say that arguably could be framed as having a political sensitivity around it? Uh, that's, a very, that's a very good question. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not an actuary, and thankfully I am not an accountant either. Um, but um, I suppose um, there, there, are, there are issues around, for example, um, at the heart of this, you have got a, a notional uh, portfolio. The purpose is you, you have an injured claimant notionally uh, who has got a very significant uh, injury, lifelong uh, needs for care, for example, not able to work. So you, you have to look at how you um, either award them a lump sum and if you award them a lump sum, you have to take account then of the accelerated receipt of that. So that's that's where the discount rate is coming from. So what you're trying to figure out is by giving them all of the money now, even money that he might need, say, in 20 years' time or 30 years' time, the notion is he could invest that and earn quite a lot of money on it or not. And those are the risks. And then the, the debate is, should an injured plaintiff be expected to take that risk? That's where all this comes from. So in that context, uh, where you're notionally having to theorise about what level of risk would that person take. And there are political decisions there. What level of risk should that person be expected to take? You know, I think, I think that's an argument which needs to be there. It needs to be out, out there. We can't pretend that that isn't there. There's also then in the acceptance of the risk, whether it be low risk, no risk. Um, I mean, for example, Wells and Wells, you might say, was very close to no risk, and that's why it was flawed. It was flawed from the very start. It wasn't really flawed from what happened 10, 15 years ago. But what we're now in a position is either, either the government in framing the legislation or GAD in applying what the government gives them have to make judgment calls. They have to look at notional uh, portfolios. Now, I'm not stocks and share person, but if you look at the uh, portfolios it is, it's comprised of... Um, government gilts, which are fairly low risk, uh, fixed bonds, again, fairly low risk, but it's, it's, it's got equities at various levels of risk. And with the equities, you've got the level of risk heightened, but you've also got the greater uh, rate of return. So by balancing that, what you then get is a mixed uh, um, risk within your uh, portfolio. Um, you can then come up with, so if you set GAD the task, right, come up with a set of mixed uh, risk uh, portfolios, they can come up with, I am quite sure, 50 
60, 100, 150, I honestly don't know, but there isn't just one that will fit it. There will be a myriad of probably hundreds and thousands of these. So in selecting that, and for example, selecting the length of the investment period, the type of investment, the percentage holding of the investment, you then influence the results. So those are all decisions, and they're not necessarily policy decisions. They are decisions, and in terms of GAD, I am not, you know, and FOIL would not be um, suggesting that GAD, that's a government action <clears throat> department, are not the correct body to go to. They certainly are, and they have the benefit of being a UK-wide service. So the same individuals have been advising uh, the Lord Chancellor in Wales in relation to the English rate and in relation to the uh, Scottish Assembly and their rate, and we'll be doing the same with ours. So this isn't, you know, like a different entity. They're all in the same UK-wide office and they'll be carrying out similar exercises. But one interesting thing is if you look at the model which GAD um, put forward, or rather which on which GAD advised on produced models and which then the Lord Chancellor in England and Wales accepted that framed the English rate that then became minus 0.25%. There's an argument could be made that looking at the risk portfolio within that, that it was um, not more adventurous, but it, it was prepared to take more risk than the Scottish one was. So by selecting the portfolios, now GAD would simply give a, a range of advices and that's whenever the Scottish Minister in Scotland or the Lord Chancellor in England then need to make strategic decisions, policy decisions. So, you know, um, I'm not sure whether that helps you, whether it confuses you, but, you know, the, these are very detailed um, uh, issues. GAD is certainly uh, the correct entity to do do that. But um, my, my initial uh, remarks at the start of this were simply... To, to make the, the committee aware that there's there's a very easy argument and it's a very tried argument to say, oh, if you go with the Scottish model, you can take the political heat of it and you just simply set up the model, you hand it over to GAD and they simply feed it all into some sort of computer system and out sprites, you know, like a rate. That's not how it happens, you know. Um, it, it's 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 by the choices that they, that they make and the decisions that they make. And they'll be doing this within their general discretion. Uh, how much of this is overseen um, by what you might describe as the executive or the government? I honestly don't know. You know, that would be a matter I think you need to ask the department, maybe the Department of Finance. I think, Sinead, sorry, if I, if I may just, uh, just add something related to that that I think is important that we get across this morning. It's just in relation to the Scottish model and how it's applied. From a policy perspective under, this, under the Scottish model, it, there's a clear um, understanding and acceptance that it will inevitably lead to overcompensation. And as a result of that, there's a financial mem memorandum that was produced as the bill was going through, which clearly, which clearly sets out the estimate around what the cost is to the public person and to the NHS in Scotland. That's something that we don't have here and something that we think is really important is brought forward um, by way of an impact assessment through, through this bill. So I think it's just a really important related point to note when we're looking particularly at the Scottish model. Thank you uh, to you both for that. And, and you're right, Stuart, because the fact even that that memorandum was created is in my mind an acceptance that this is not a pure exercise, that there does have, you have to be cognizant of other effects beyond. And obviously as a um, legislator, our first maybe immediate thoughts go to the government 
um, end of things, but that will have an effect, no doubt, on the markets as well. And I do accept, you know, I accept when um, you're talking about, you know, it's all notional and, you know, the, the risks and um, all of that. And, and let's be honest, you know, we, we all recognise that, that this is, um, there's little safeguarding even I see in this in terms of, whether the person's vulnerable or is able to manage their money and all of that and you know advocates and I suppose we need to understand that piece better because you know ultimately the person could go out and put it on black or red or whatever their choice is you know and but there are significant effects to that if this person's vulnerable and will need access to NHS and that effect could widen Stuart you know from the initial assessment and if that money wasn't managed properly and safeguarding wasn't there. So th there are things beyond the actual actuary part um, that do have a public effect. And, and I, I guess what I'm trying to do here is to pair back what is a procedural piece and what is a political piece. Where are the political nuances and decisions um, and at what point? Because I think you're right, Kevin, you know, we have to respect the government actuaries and what they are able to do and, and their role in this. But we need to uh, assure ourselves that it's not overreach and that they're not constrained in any way to, to make it fit the, the time that they're that they're working inside. Thank you. Thank you both. That has been really helpful. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Sinead. Uh, Rachel Woods. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, uh, Kevin and Stuart, for your answers so far. A lot uh, that's that's cleared up quite a lot of um, questions that I've had. It's been uh, good to listen in on on that and your very detailed responses. I just want to pick up something that is probably quite technical, but I'm just trying to get my head around it. You appreciate this, uh, especially for very complicated um, <laughs> what we're looking at, um, and it seems to get com more complicated every week. Um, but in the um, one of the responses, uh, the response apart uh, stated apart from the composition of the notional portfolio set out in the new methodology which in the view of the joint signatories is cautious and light in, in, in equities the one part of the bill that could be reconsidered and either removed or amended amended is the further margin prescribed at 0.5 percent then it goes on to talk about further margin could you explain that um, to me a wee bit more on what you want the committee to, what would you recommend the committee to look at in this? Yes, um, Rachel, um, uh, there, there are, there are, this is, this is probably um, a, num a number of issues. I mean, if you're looking, I think one of the questions that the committee asked was, are there tendencies within the Scottish bill proposed that would lead to overcompensation, which is one of the things here, and certainly one of the things that would lead to that is the further margin, but it, it isn't by any means the only one. I mean, if I want to list these, the first is the construction of the notional investment portfolio itself, which is too cautious. Um, it needs to be a little bit more uh, equity uh, than uh, um, low risk guilt. Um, Secondly, uh, the well, the department have already acknowledged that by going with the English model of 43 rather than 30, so that would partly rebalance it. But I would say it doesn't. Um, you know, the significance may may well be that later on today you will hear further, as I'm no doubt you will from April and from Focus, um, and you will hear they may well make arguments uh, in relation to the very same points, uh, and they may well in fact. Uh, put forward arguments that they that they should be maintained are in fact maybe uh, 
uh, raised, I honestly don't know. But the important thing between 43 and 30 years, the actual difference that has to the effect on the rate is quite small. Uh, there was work done around this um, uh, the last time around, and um, uh, I think the consensus was that um, the difference was between 0.1% and 0.2%. So the effect of having either um, a 43-year notional duration or 30-year on what the ultimate um, rate of return would be was 0.1 or 0.2. Now, given that the discount rate is, is rounded up or down to a quarter percent, that's 0.25%, what that in fact means is the actual effect will either be zero or it'll be 0.25%. So in, in terms of uh, the bigger picture here, it's certainly something which FOIL and BIBA, and I would no doubt the ABI and CBI would uh, say that if the committee, the assembly are looking to, to um, rejig some of the proposed uh, Scottish-based model, uh, that would be one thing. Um, so uh, it's, it's, it's already been um, conceded though, so we already have that already. So we have 43, then 30. So the big issue then is the two adjustments. And it isn't just the uh, further margin at 0.5%. Before you get into that, you've, you, the first adjustment that you have is 0.75, and that's for the, the notional cost of uh, taxation on the investment and taking advice, investment advice, and that would be charges, annual charges. So that's already 0.75%. Now, that, that is evidence-based to a degree, and there will be arguments, I have no doubt, from April and from others, that that figure is not sufficient. Equally, you know, FOIL and the ABI could have made arguments that it should be lesser. In fact, it shouldn't be there at all. But uh, we're not making that argument. We're not seeking to make that argument. What we are saying is it's a further margin that you're touching on at 0.5%. We say that's totally unnecessary. It's too much. And in a way, given what I've said before, that there are any tendencies in the Scottish bill that will overcompensate, by bringing in the further margin, you're essentially double counting. You're essentially, you've, you've already uh, provided for the risk of overcompensation by, for example, the compensation, or sorry, the composition of the uh, portfolio, which is, we think, too uh, low risk or risk adverse. So you've already done that already. You've, so you've already balanced up the equation, which is the balancing argument between overcompensation and undercompensation. And, but then to add on the further margin of, uh, at 0.5%, we say it's totally unnecessary. And just on the point, if there is a political or a policy point to pick up in the Scottish Bill, it is the further margin. Because the Scottish executive, the Scottish minister, and as Stuart's already alluded to, in the, the memorandum, the financial memorandum that accompanied the Scottish uh, statute in 2019, which our bill is very largely based, they made no bones about it. They didn't try to disguise it. They didn't try to bury it. They actually came out and said, we accept that by bringing forward a further margin of 0.5%, there is a significant risk of overcompensation. Now, it, it's, there, it's there on the record. Um, they, they didn't try to disguise it. So if you're looking for um, a policy, or whether you call that political, or whether you call it policy, it's certainly policy, um, it is sorry. Excuse me. <laughs> it is certainly something which uh, Foil, uh, Biba, I have no doubt CBI and ABI would ask 
uh, that the committee consider whether it needs to be there at all, because it's already been taken account of by the other issues I've already referred to, particularly the compensation of the national uh, portfolio. Does that assist? Brilliant. Thank you very much, Kevin. It's good to have that explained. Okay. If I could just add to that, just just to be to be really clear, the Scottish um, the Scottish policy paper and um, this the, as a demonstration of how detailed we were, the detail that we've gone into in this, and I think it's paragraph seventy one of that paper says it it is inevitable that there, that it will lead to overcompensation. So it's as clear as that, um, and that is the issue that we're grappling with. And it's it's why I'm here on behalf of business because of the concern in that, and and the, we we want to get that strong presumption in against overcompensation, um, and 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 just to be clear, the, the Scottish government accept that it's inevitable. Thank you, Stuart. I don't think you get any clearer than that. Uh, so I appreciate your comments, Sarah. Thank you, Kevin, for that. That's me, Chair. Thank you, Rachel. Linda, are you looking back in? Just a quick question on that last point, Chair. So. Obviously, I mean, the, the Scottish government have been up, very upfront about it and said about the over, but am I not correct in saying that at the beginning of this, that you said that the the English and Welsh model, whilst it doesn't have it on the face of the bill, have adopted the same approach? Yes, they have. They have. They, they've actually come about it from a slightly different angle, but the, the, net, the net effect is yes, they have. It's the same. Um, uh, there was, in fact, a, there's a very... Uh, there's a very interesting um, statement that was made by the uh, Lord Chancellor whenever they were um, striking the rate in England and Wales and they were reducing the Wales and Wales base minus 0.75% to minus 0.25%. Um, uh, again, you know, we can, we can send you on uh, details of it, but what he said in terms was that if he had simply accepted the GATT mm -hmm. advice, uh, and uh, that was taking into account the uh, adjustment already for the cost of taxation and uh, investment advice. The rate in England and Wales at that time would have been a positive rate. It would have been 0.25%. The reason it became minus 0.25% was they went ahead uh, and the Lord Chancellor asked uh, GAD to do further projections, or maybe they reworked the figure. I can't quite remember what it was, but it's a very interesting piece where the Lord Chancellor also uh, made a not dissimilar uh, comment that, that was made in Scotland. And what they were saying was, yes, uh, it is carrying with it uh, a risk of overcompensation. But what they, were, what, they, what, had, what they had in mind, I think, was trying to balance uh, between the risk of overcompensation and undercompensation. But what they were doing was they were comparing it they're almost saying as if, well, okay, there's a risk of overcompensation, but whatever the defendant lobby see resulting from this, it won't be as bad as what it would have been if we'd stayed with Wells and Wells. Now, that to me was not a very, I didn't think it was a very fair way of interpreting it. And hopefully I've interpreted the Lord Chancellor's point on that correctly. And I doubt someone will give me an argument on that. But um, again, it's something which if, which if you want, if, that, if that's a point of interest to you, um, Foyle will be quite happy to write to the committee and set that particular piece out for you. Yeah, that, that would be helpful, Kevin. I would, I would appreciate that. I'm, I'm just cognizant of that fact that, that they felt they needed to do the same thing, even though it wasn't in the case of the bill, so it could potentially still be something that would happen here, even if it wasn't on the, the face of the bill. But I, I think it would be helpful to have that information. If you can send that to us, I would appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Chair.
Okay, thank you. Well, can I thank you both um, for coming, Kevin and Stuart, and appreciate the time that you've spent with the, the meeting. And if there's anything that we need to follow up on, we will we will do so. But thank you on behalf of the committee. Thank you. Many thanks. Okay. Thank you. Okay, members, let's move on to the next evidence session then with the Association of British Insurers. And there's a copy of that written submission and a briefing note that has been provided. Um, for members. So let me welcome, uh, hopefully, to the meeting Alistair Ross, who is the Assistant Director of uh, ABI. And uh, we'll record this again by Hansard and publish it on the committee webpage. So, Alistair, I'm going to hand over to you to uh, briefly outline some of the key issues and then we'll move into questions. Thanks, Alistair. Good morning, Chair. Um, thank you very much um, for that introduction. Um, hopefully you can hear me okay. It looks like you can. Yeah. Um, I'm very grateful to the committee for this opportunity to come and give evidence to you today and to those members of the committee that we've previously discussed reform of the discount rate with in, in, in recent months. Um, as with the previous witnesses, you've got our written evidence submission, so I'll keep my opening remarks to the point and, and focus on the, the three aspects that we feel are the most important here. And firstly, that is that the methodology for calculating the personal injury discount rate in Northern Ireland is flawed. It's out of date. It's literally from the last century, and it needs reform by this bill as soon as possible. You know, the ABI supports the principle of the bill, 100% compensation. You know, it's overdue, and it must be a priority for the Assembly. The, the committee has been very clear on its priority for it. Um, we'd hope the Assembly re reflects that too. Northern Ireland must have and must use a, a fit-for-purpose methodology when it's calculating compensation for the most seriously injured people. The current methodology is based on case laws we know, known as Wells versus Wells, and that significantly exceeds the 100% compensation principle. And what happens is that the cost of this is borne by taxpayers, consumers, and businesses in Northern Ireland. Now, th this bill has already been considerably delayed um, in terms of its introduction, and while it absolutely needs to be thoroughly scrutinised by this, th this committee and, and MLAs um, across the Assembly, there are now concerns that the Assembly may run out of time to pass this before the end of the current session. In that situation, if that were to happen, as the committee has already heard, the, the interim rate of minus 1.75% could become an indefinite one until the formation of a new executive, the appointment of a new justice minister, and a new bill coming forward. That 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 must you know that scenario needs to be avoided at all costs. So the priority is to to get this bill onto the statute book. Secondly, we do not support the Department of Justice's so-called Scottish model because it doesn't meet the 100% compensation principle that everyone is committed to and everyone aspires to. The Scottish model means overcompensation, as, as um, Stuart and as Kevin previously set out very eloquently, and that overcompensation will need to be paid for by compensators. So that's the taxpayer in terms of claims against the NHS or other public bodies, which you, you, you covered in the session at the end of last month, and consumers because it will generate increased insurance claims costs. The ABI supports 100% compensation via a discount rate that reflects the real-life choices claimants make when they invest their, their um, compensation settlements. 
is widely acknowledged. I think that they no longer use index-linked government securities, more commonly known as GILTs, because this would actually lose them money. Um, when this was originally introduced, GILTs had a positive yield, and so you would be able to generate a return from GILTs, albeit not as great as, 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 as other assets. That was, that was almost 30 years ago. We're now in a situation post the financial um, crisis where GILTs are actually producing a negative yield. So if you put all your money in gilts, it actually costs you even more money to have that. You lose money. That just that just doesn't make sense and no rational investor would do that. So we need to move away from that as the basis on which everything else is built. Um, the further margin adjustment, which you've just been speaking about in the in, in the bill, is designed to reduce the risk of undercompensation even though there's no evidence that undercompensation actually happens in the current system. That, that is a policy choice. It's a policy choice that's been made by the Department of Justice to increase the level of compensation for plaintiffs and go beyond the 100% compensation principle. Um, as we said in our written submission, we still recommend using the England and Wales model, including ministerial accountability, and we may come on to that in the questions. And then finally, the bill should be amended to remove the further margin adjustment and to revise the notional investment portfolio. So as we said, the further margin adjustment is designed to reduce the risk of undercompensation, despite the lack of evidence. I, I would point the committee towards the, the written submission from the Prudential Regulation Authority, which I think is actually quite relevant on a number of levels. So the Prudential Regulation Authority told the committee that this adjustment, the minus, uh, sorry, the further margin adjustment, this adjustment favours the claimant and it can be omitted if the bill wants to achieve strict balance in terms of the 100% principle. And it describes it, and I'll quote it, as this is essentially a political decision for the Northern Ireland Assembly. Now, I think you could probably apply that to the other aspects that you were talking about early on, but I think that's a fairly significant point to, to consider. The further margin adjustment the effect of that would be to add hundreds of thousands of pounds to the value of claims paid by public bodies, insurers and other compensators. The various examples that you've seen from the Department of Justice, we also provided some examples in our written evidence submission, they show the effect that a 0.25 percentage change can have in terms of the, the value of the compensation sum. I, mean, I, I think it's also just kind of worth noting that this has been adopted from the Damages, Investment, Returns and Periodical Payments Scotland Act, which was passed by the Scottish Parliament in 2019. And, you know, as others said, they, 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 that legislation did note that, and I'll quote it again, this is intended to recognise that a seriously harmed pursuer is unlikely to be able to meet their needs if they're undercompensated. The corollary is that there will inevitably be a probability of overcompensation, but it will be less than if the rate were set by reference to index-linked government securities. Or guilts. Um, I mean, this bill also adopts a notional investment portfolio, paragraph 12 of the bill from the Scottish legislation, and that's to be used to calculate the anticipated returns on those investments in order to set the discount rate. This notional investment portfolio is overcautious, as I think Stuart touched on earlier on. The effect of that is that it will depress the, the discount rate. It will lead to a lower discount rate, which again will exceed the 100% compensation target. If the executive and if the assembly make a policy choice that means more than 100% compensation under the legislation, then it's really important to understand and accept the consequences of that choice. And the consequences are going to be higher costs for compensators, we've touched on already, um, in terms of the public bodies, taxpayers, and, and ultimately consumers. And I would just kind of round off there by saying that we, we fundamentally disagree and with and oppose the a proposed amendment from the Association of Personal Injury Lawyers to increase the adjustment for tax and investment charges to 1.5%. 
that's something that was rejected by the Scottish Parliament. You, under the current systems, you have a 0.75 adjustment for investment charges and tax in England and Wales and in Scotland. And we've not seen any evidence that tax and investment charges in Northern Ireland are any different. But I'll, I'll, I'll finish there and um, try to answer your questions as best I can. Okay, thank you, Alistair. And I'm not going to go over some of the points that you've already put on the record. Um, just one question from me. In terms of the notional investment portfolio, um, you point out about it being over overcautious. So what would you recommend to fix that? Well, if I can refer back briefly to the, the written evidence submission, so we included in that research that had been carried out by um, Pennell's Financial Planning, um, to give them their full title, and Pennell's looked at that in relation to the Scottish legislation, and their view is that the portfolio is overweight in what's known as fixed investments and underweight in equity investments. So the, the change we're looking for there would be to put more weighting into equity investment, not, not a, 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 a wholesale change, but to, to level up the, the portfolio and to make it more appropriate to deliver the, the, the compensation principle of 100% that we're all working towards. The effect of having a portfolio that is underweight in equities, as, as, as this one currently is, means that the, the person who's relying on it is not hedging their inflation risk sufficiently. Equity investments are, the, are an effective way to do that. So we would submit that if the department increases the size of the portfolio of equities within the overall portfolio, it would be better able to, to manage that risk. Um, I mean, the, the notion of portfolio is also tied into the point about 43 years versus 30 years, which I think you kind of covered off earlier. But just to, just to add to that, the longer the investment period of the portfolio, the greater capacity there is for the portfolio to achieve the return that it's trying to, to deliver for a person to, to smooth out the effects of short-term changes in the markets if markets in any asset class goes up and down. And yet, we would just you know, encourage the committee to ask the, the department to demonstrate the evidence for its policy decisions here, as, as Stuart has set out quite effectively earlier on. Okay, thank you. Uh, if I'll bring in members now, Linda Dillon. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Alistair, for your um, presentation. Appreciate it. And um, I suppose the first point I want to pick up is the, the point that you've highlighted that the cost will be borne by the taxpayers and, and public services and, and businesses, and I agree with you. Um, but, but, but I noticed you didn't say by the insurers. I'm just making the point um, that, 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 that insurers will protect themselves at all costs, and then that is passed on to the rest of us. So. I mean, they're a business at the end of the day, I get that, but, but I just feel that the point that is, is worth making. And that doesn't belittle any, any of what you've said to any of your points, because many of them I, I don't disagree with, to be fair. Um, I suppose one of the concerns I have, and you've raised around the, the Scottish model, you, you know, the, and, and you've been very upfront from the beginning, we did informal meet yourselves, and, and you highlighted this at that time, that the English... England Wales model would have been a better model than the Scottish model. The only thing I would say is if we go back to the beginning with the department and say we want the England Wales model, you're going to come up against the problem that you've already highlighted that we end up with the 1975 as an which would be a disaster. And um, you know, for yourself and for public services and, and for everyone, I think they'd across the board to be fair. So I'm probably cautious on that, but I'm not against changes to the bill that we have in front of us. And I think if there are changes that would be positive and work for everybody and, and you know, are, are going to be 
make sure that we have better outcomes for everybody, including the, those who are injured, then we should be looking to that. And I mean, if you've been watching, you probably note that Sinead Bradley was one of the, the people who picked up on that first, but I certainly agree with her that periodic payment orders may be something that we might want to um, consider in, in at least some cases. And as Sinead has outlined, as much for a safeguarding issue as anything, because you have potential for, for seriously injured people to maybe um, invest in extremely high risk. So, uh, I'm not opposed to terms of the periodic payment orders then. I'm assuming that your view would be they would be or are positive thing, but, but I don't want to assume that, so I'm going to allow you to, to answer that one. Thank you very much. Um, there's there's quite a lot in there, so I'll, yeah. I'll I'll be as concise as I can. But there's a there's there's, there's a few things I want to, to just address in what you've said there. I, I absolutely recognise the risk of going right back to square one and the England and Wales model, and 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 and, and you know bearing in mind what I said at the start about the, the, the importance of getting this legislation passed. I think we are where we are with the Scottish model. Um, and, and I think you've, you, you've summarised the position and the situation that we're in better than I could. So I, I, I don't disagree with you in that at all. Um, I'll come to PPOs in, in a moment and perhaps expand a bit on on the, the insurance perspective on those and, and how they operate. But, you know, I, I absolutely appreciate what you say about um, insurers' own interests. And I've, you know, I've, I've seen and noted what you've said in previous sessions. And, you know, insurance is a commercial contract. You know, the, if you break it down to its very basic level, a customer pays a premium to the insurer. And in return, the insurer takes their financial risk onto their own balance sheet. And if there's a claim, they pay out. Now, if an insurer takes in more money via premiums, then, then it pays out in claims over the course of a year. It makes a profit. Um, that's how insurance works, and I don't think you know there's you know there's there, there, there's anything kind of controversial in that. But as I say, if if an insurer takes in money via premiums and and doesn't have to pay out as much in claims and makes a profit, but then there is a single what's known in the industry as a large loss case, the kind of case that would result in a you know, it's usually a seven-figure um, compensation settlement and one which would involve the personal injury discount rate. You know, that, that can cost several million pounds as we set out in our submissions. So mm -hmm. that would be a substantial loss in that particular policy. And, and the way insurers address that is that they're taking on these risks, these liability risks, hoping to make a profit, um, but they need to price and prepare for on the basis that each one of those policies could result in paying out in a multi-million compensation settlement. So they need to they need to price accordingly to make those de decisions. I know you've, you've discussed previously about whether, um, you know, insurers could absorb more of the cost, but, you know, the reality is that when we're talking about this, we're talking about two major areas of liability insurance. You've got motor insurance, which individuals pay, and also businesses that operate fleets pay. Um, that's a pretty competitive market um, across the UK. It's a competitive one, and therefore the profit margins are very small. Um, you know, and the profits made on selling thousands of policy, where no major claims are incurred, could then be offset by a single multi-million pound compensation settlement. To, to put a bit of perspective on that, um, 
the ABI collects data on premiums and claims. Um, we hold it at a UK level. Unfortunately, we don't have a Northern Ireland breakdown available at the moment. But in terms of the past 10 years, the UK motor insurance market has made a loss. It's, it's paid out more in claims and it's taken in through premiums in six of those 10 years. The combined underwriting losses for those six years were £3.3 billion. And the combined profits in the four years when they made a profit was £837 million. So that's an overall loss of £2.4 in the UK motor market over the past decade. The employer's liability insurance market, um, not, not quite at the same scale, but again, it's recorded an underwriting loss in seven of the past 10 years. They've paid out more in claims in those seven years than they've actually taken in, in premiums. And so the total losses were just over a billion, total profits um, 459 million. And so that represents an, over loss of, an overall loss over that 10-year period of 627 million pounds. Now, that's taken those, you know, those individual um, lines of, of insurance in, standing on their own. The profits from other lines of insurance, which contribute to insurance funds' overall financial performance in terms of their end-of-year results, you, you, I don't think it's fair and you can't rely on profits from other areas to offset the costs or losses of liability claims. So insurers are facing, you know, at the moment, significant cost exposures. The, the, change, the decision to change the discount rate from plus 2.5% to minus 1.75% is having an immediate effect on insurance claims costs. Now, that's because insurers will have written those, that, that level of cover when the legal, um, when, the, when the law said the discount rate was 2.5%, and now the law says that the discount rate is minus 1.75%. That puts significant inflationary pressure on the cost of, of meeting a claim and paying out. Um, you know, the potential scale of serious injury compensation could more than treble in some situations, and that puts pressure on the insurer's costs, and insurers will price, price that accordingly. Um, you know, as I say, we're now, we're now in the situation where in the, in the short term, hopefully, Northern I in Northern Ireland, insurers have written covering the basis of 2.5%, they're now paying out on the basis of minus 1.75%, and, and that has a huge impact. Um, I, mean, I mean, just to reassure you, because I know there are some concerns, and I think Kevin Shevlin covered off very effectively the legal position on PPOs, and that's hopefully reassured you, but just to... to provide further reassurance. Under international insurance regulation, insurance companies have to reserve sufficient capital to pay out on every liability that they take on when they're writing a policy. They need to reserve or set aside sufficient funds that they, they can pay out as and when that, that policy falls due. This, as I say, the system's not set up so that profits from one area can be used to offset the potential liabilities as a result of a multi-million pound claim for a case involving the personal injury discount rate. Um, I, I appreciate I've, I've gone into quite a lot of detail, but I hope that's helpful just in terms of the, the point you made on costs and profits. In, in terms of PPOs, um, Kevin has um, summarised the position very effectively um, in terms of the legal protections, and they are there. Because insurers are regulated financial services companies, that protection extends under the Courts Act 2003, and the Financial Services Compensation Scheme would continue any PPO payments in the, the highly unlikely event that an insurer goes into administration or is liquidated. It's an incredibly rare event. Mm. From an insurer's point of view, a, 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 PPA is, a PPO rather is a, is a more complex settlement option. Um, if, you, if you look at the option of a lump sum settlement, the sum is agreed, the insurer pays it, and that's it. The, 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 the two parties go away. Um, the plaintiff has their money and they don't need to have any other contact with the, the compensator. And the compensator has 
paid out the money and he doesn't have to make any other reservations on his book. Um, a PPO means an ongoing relationship. So as, as Kevin said, it can be an annual or a more regular payment that goes through um, and, and that will last the, the plaintiff for, for, for the rest of the days. Um, the, the insurer therefore has to budget for that ongoing payment going out and, and, and reserve sufficient capital to make sure that happens and that goes on. So it's more complex from an insurer's point of view. However, the, the important point in PPOs, which I think is worth noting, is that in in the whole process of settling a, a, a compensation claim for serious injury, the, for want of a better term, the initiative is with the plaintiff and with the plaintiff's solicitors. So it's within the gift of the plaintiff and, the solic and their solicitor to request a PPO to say mm -hmm. that is the option we would like. Um, at the moment in Northern Ireland, the courts can't impose that or enforce that. Mm -hmm. The legislation in Scotland, the equivalent legislation in Scotland did provide for that, although it's not been implemented yet. But it's really for the plaintiff and their solicitor to say, we've looked at it, we've looked at the benefits of a PPO, we've looked at the benefits of a lump sum, we would like to go for the PPO. It's not the insurer's place to say, we would propose a PPO. And the reality is that if, an, if a plaintiff comes forward and says, we'd like a PPO, I, I can't really think of any circumstances under which an insurer could realistically decline that request. Um, the, the issue we have here is that very few plaintiff solicitors appear to recommend that to their clients. I mean, you, I, I, I would defer to the subsequent witnesses you've got coming in in terms of why plaintiff solicitors tend to lean towards lump sums or why plaintiffs lean, lean towards lump sums. But I think it would be good to get a better understanding of that. Um, the, the other point that's kind of related to that is the option of interim payments. So. As cases are going through, these cases take a long time to settle. Um, you know, it's years rather than months, unfortunately, because of the complexities involved. But throughout that period, there is opportunity if the plaintiff and their solicitor makes a representation to the insurer that they can get an interim payment, a drawdown of part of the compensation in advance. So, for instance, if the nature of their injury meant that they needed to to, to move their, their residence. You know, they were in a high-rise flat that was no longer accessible. They need to move into a ground floor premises. You know, things like that can be agreed so funds can be released in advance on an interim basis. Again, that doesn't seem to happen an awful lot. Um, insurers, again, would respond positively if these approaches were made. But as I say, the for want of a better term, the initiative rests with the plaintiff and their solicitors on that. You know, insurers will collaborate and cooperate wherever they can on that. But hopefully, hopefully that helps just to set out the position in terms of PPOs and and, and the scope for them in Northern Ireland. It, it, it does, Alistair, and I think it, it probably just adds another wee layer in just in terms of, of my assumption. So I was right not to assume because you've outlined that there are some complexities around PPOs for, for the insurance company. They would have to put in the administration cost, which is a fair enough point and not one that I had um, considered to be fair. So I appreciate that. Thank you, um, Chair. The, those are all the questions I have for Alistair. Thank you, Alistair. Appreciate it. Thank you, Linda. Uh, bring in Gemma Dolan into the spotlight, please. Thanks, Chair, and thanks, Alistair. Um, you mentioned your that the notional portfolio is overcautious. And you also say that there is a lack of evidence on how claimants invest their settlements. If there's a lack of evidence on how claimants invest their settlements, then what backs up the assertion that the notional portfolio is overcautious? I, I, I think, to be honest, Gemma, there, there are two different things. The notional portfolio is 
how you think somebody would would invest over a period of time, regardless of whether they've got a serious injury or not. So it's a, a theoretical construct where they say, right, I need to achieve a certain return um, in terms of investment um, over a certain period of time. What are the best ways to do that? And, and you set that out. In, in terms of the lack of evidence, um, as I said, it goes back to the point I made earlier that when a lump sum settlement is reached, then the, the two parties go their separate ways. And so there's very limited visibility uh, on, on what happens after that. I mean, from the ABI's point of view, we've done our best. We've, we could carried out some research um, and we shared that with the, the committee and with the department previously. And that looked, I think it was around about two and a half thousand settlements to see the average length of time that that money needed to last an injured person. And that came out, and I think from memory, I think it was about 46 years. And so we agree with the department. We're very pleased to see that it had taken that on board and adapted the Scottish model to use this 43-year calculation as opposed to the 30-year calculation because the combined effect of this overcautious notional investment portfolio, which would, would be very cautious and therefore is less likely to reach the returns that you're looking for, and a shorter investment period together those would really depress for want of a better term they would really press down on the ultimate calculation of a personal injury discount rate um and and that's where our concerns are in relation to, to how that's calculated and how that's worked out so we're we're reliant i guess on 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 the the plaintiff solicitors because they will tend to have more contact with um plaintiffs after the case has been settled. Um, I mean, one area where I should say I absolutely agree with, with, with April is when they say that injured people are not stockbrokers. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. But the reality is that most plaintiff solicitors will advise the plaintiffs to get independent legal advice. And in many cases, I'll often refer them on to firms. I think Gabe will mention some firms in their, uh, their written submission, the type of firms that you know can provide independent financial advice and, and they work through. That, that, that suggests to me that the, the, the plaintiff solicitors and certainly the advisors will have an ongoing relationship with those people. It would have been really helpful if that analysis and information could have been sought from them so that they could actually provide a better picture on what happens to lump sums after they've been been handed over, do do people invest them just in index-linked government securities? I, I think almost definitely not now, because of the reasons I set out earlier. That if you did that, if you put all your assets and all your your compensation settlement into gilts, you're actually going to be paying the UK government money rather than it generating money or an interest return for you. So you know the the idea that that is is how people invest is just gone it's from a previous time um you know it was maybe applicable you know, as i say back in the, the late 90s when when this was was designed and when wells wells versus wells was considered now it's it's significantly out of date which is why we need this reform you know that's why we need this bill to, to go through to reform this methodology that's it's literally from the last century and is is, is fundamentally out of date um does that answer the question or have i just kind of made it more confusing sorry no i think that that's a wee bit clearer, Alistair. No, thank you. And that's my questions, Chair. Thank you. Um, Sinead Bradley, please. Thank you, Chair, and thanks, Alistair. That's been um, very informative so far. I suppose I'll hone in, and a lot has been covered, so I'll, I'll hone in maybe on just one or two particular points. Um, in terms of the notional portfolio being 
risk averse, if you like. I think I concur with that because, you know, when I step back and I think we're very caught up in the framework and the, the idea, but these are individuals who, through no fault of their own, have had their life chances and opportunities restricted quite heavily. And no doubt, if they do, um, and I hope they are directed to, if they do get financial advice, I would hope that that would be to take a very cautious approach because this money does have to last a lifetime. So I do accept the, the notional portfolio having to are on the side of caution and perhaps not reflecting the market. Um, but I also take the point that, you know, to my mind, a, a longer an investment, the, the more you would get a return on it. But going to the point then you made about the, um, and I appreciate the 0.75% speaks to that, that talks about that engagement with um, a professional advisor. It takes into account any taxation and all the costs that might be associated there. But I do take your point then when you move on to the 0.5%. And, but on my reading of that, Alistair, and I could be wrong, so um, I'll put it to you. In terms of that 0.5%, to my mind, that is almost, a, if there is a release valve, or uh, an inflation valve in this legislation, that is it. Because it goes on to say that that 0.5 can be um, modified by regulation through the Department of Justice. So it can actually go to a zero or a positive number. Um, and I, I just wonder, is there a danger in it not being there? because it may have an effect even even to your betterment, if you want to argue, you know, in that respect. And I know at the outset of the bill, if there is another piece in there, um, I think the judge has it within their capacity not to accept this rate if there, if there is an argument made um, by either party that the, the rate should be different, but that's there as well. So I'm just really conscious that, you know, it's very difficult to predict every circumstance and every time and there is value to my mind in having that piece there. So I'd be very reluctant to just throw it out without understanding its full effect. Have you any further thoughts on that, Alistair? No, I, I think that's a really good question, Sinead. Thanks very much, because it's an important point. It's, it's also a complex one. This is quite a technical and quite a niche area of, of insurance, let alone in, in insurance law. Um, and... It's it's an interesting concept. I'm really kind of considered the the 0.5 percent as a as a release valve. I mean, certainly your point about the scope to modify it is an interesting one. The question would be what appetite there would be to do that and how easy it would be to do that um, going forward. Certainly, Scotland has incorporated this 0.5 percent into its legislation, and that passed in 2019. And there's there's been no discussion or revisiting in that. Obviously, attention has been elsewhere due to the pandemic, but that just isn't something that has been considered or discussed in Scotland at the moment. And it's really not the intention as I understand it from the way the bill has been drafted and from discussions with the Department of Justice. This is this the intention seems to be that this is a fixed adjustment so that the guards, the government actuaries department, they would, they would run the calculation that's been prescribed to them by the department through this legislation. Um, they would produce a recommended discount rate and then there would be this further margin 
deducted, regardless of what you know the inflation situation is or whatever whatever else was going on. And I, I, as I say, you know, I go back to the, what the Prudential Regulation Authority said that you know they recognise that this favours the claimants. It can be omitted if you want to achieve strict balance in the legislation, but it's essentially a political decision rather than one that's required in order to to reach the the hundred percent compensation principle. Um, and and you know I, I think you know as as you know as the PRA said I think that's a really important point. I would I would defer to them on that. The the other question I have in my mind is that. The further margin has been suggested to be required because some people have a very low in, or, or almost zero investment risk appetite. They really don't want to risk losing any of their compensation settlement at all. And uh, that's a perfectly valid view and I understand that entirely. The answer to that is probably in that situation to take a PPO, to go into a periodical payment order, which absolutely guarantees that you will have a, a regular payment coming in for the rest of your lifetime, the, there's, there's opportunities to review that if circumstances change substantially, if your condition was to get worse, or the economic changes were to the, the economic situation at a macro level was to, to change significantly. So there are all those opportunities to do that. And and, and if, if the PPO is there as an option, and if the PPO is is available, then the question is, well, why do you need that further margin adjustment? If the further margin adjustment is there, to, just to guard against un, the risk of undercompensation and deliberately introduce overcompensation, um, and it's designed to act as a as a device for those people who have very very low or zero investment risk. Why, why would those people not take the PPO if the PPO was available and was there? Thanks, Alistair, and I appreciate you know that is only my interpretation. <laughs> Wrong, and it's possibly you know something we can explore further with the department on their rationale and um, behind it, or is it cut and paste with no yeah. rationale? You know that's something we need to to find out and explore. And yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be minded to doing anything that takes the options from the recipient. You know, um, I, I do think if it's required because I don't think it's it's reasonable to just say well then take the PPO. You know, I think the option should be available because there may be circumstances, personal or family circumstances, where the PPO is not a fit, you know. Um, so for that reason, I suppose we, we could do with exploring that a bit more. The, the one other thing, Alistair, if I might, um, why we have you, in terms of then the, the actual review piece of the legislation being, I think it's five years, you know, where they, they go in. Do you see that as being um, an issue at all or is that... Have you any thoughts on that? Is that reasonable? I'll, I'll, I'll stand to be corrected, but I think the proposition is that the initial rate should be reviewed in July 2024, which is obviously just a little over three years away. Um, and I think the intention there is so that it would then fall into the same review cycle as the one for England and Wales and the one for Scotland, so that GAD is doing three different review exercises, but doing that work all at one time, because obviously there's, a, there's, a, there's an element of overlap. And then after that, Northern Ireland, it moved to five years. I think five years is a really important point, um, and, and you're absolutely right to raise it. I think um, the the evidence you took from the Med Medical Protection Society last week was was very much along the lines of how we see it as well, that if, if you have a, a shorter period there's always the risk. I think three years have been suggested as a potential period that three years in, in, in the lifetime of these kind of cases is, is, is not unusual cases to run beyond three years. So 
there's always a, a risk if you have the review period on too short a basis that there may be a calculation in the latter stages of a settlement that one side or the other might say, well, if we hang on you know, another six months, another 12 months, another 18 months, the rate would be reviewed and it might be a more advantageous rate to us. You know, and that could apply on either side. In that case, I think, you know, there's just a very simple question to ask, which is, is that in the best interest of the plaintiff? You know, so you've got a person who has been seriously injured, suffered injuries that have literally changed their life. Um, is it justifiable to hold off for a further, as I say, six or 12 or 18 months just to see if the rate changes and then try and reach a settlement? I think there's a real risk that you could have that kind of behaviour if the review period was any shorter than five years. Similarly, a, a review period of longer than, than, than five years wouldn't be practical either. I mean, the, the discount rate that's effective in Northern Ireland at the moment, um, the plus, two, sorry, beg your pardon, until the start of this month, uh, the discount rate in Northern Ireland was 2.5%. That had been set in 2001, and that lasted until 2021. That's, that, that's far too long. And that's how some of the problems that we're now facing have been allowed to develop because nobody's gone back and looked at it and reviewed it. Um, we are where we are now. I think five years is, is, is probably the, the most practical and sensible and fairest review period for both sides. Okay, thank you, Alistair. And I think in, in one of the other um, presentations, I was I was actually pleasantly surprised to find out how many settlements happen outside of a court setting in terms of, so, you know, I was mindful of there being perhaps bottlenecks every five years um, and interim payments maybe becoming a, a bigger focus then in those periods where people get the initial money they need. But no, that, that's a reasonable um, response. So thank you, Alistair. Appreciate it. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you, Sinead. Um, we're going to move on to the next session just then at this stage. So thank you, Alistair, for your time with the committee. Thank you. Okay, members, so the next two um, evidence sessions that we have are, I think, both quite similar. Now, we hadn't done this beforehand. Um, I think they're both already online. And just for the sake of time, because we're now behind schedule, members, I was going to bring both of them in rather than uh, go through the same questions and invite them to make their uh, opening remarks at this stage. So apologies to both of them for not having pre-arranged this, but if you're both content to do that, um, I would be keen if I can bring both of you in simultaneously and uh, allow us to, to delve into these questions. So if you're happy to do that, um, I'm going to bring Julian and Una on together, if you're content. And I'll go to Julian first, because that was the order that we were planning to do. So, Julian, do you want to make um, uh, remarks initially, and then I'll move to Una, and then I'm going to go to uh, members for questions at that stage. So, Julian, thank you. Um, yes, please, and good afternoon. And, uh, and I'm perfectly happy with this suggested format, and Una and I know each other well indeed for the sake of transparency Una is also a member of focus but today um, as she will no doubt further explain is, is giving evidence on behalf of april um focus are a group of 25 preeminent solicitors um from england Wales, scotland and northern ireland uh, all of our members have dedicated their careers to acting for seriously injured plaintiffs and we include amongst our members um eight past presidents of the association of personal injury lawyers our aims include furthering the understanding in the wider community of issues which arise for those who suffer serious injury caused by the wrongful acts or omissions of another. And I suppose 
it, it, just to explain what's the difference between Focus and APOL, well, uh, Focus is a much more select group solely focusing on, um, on plaintiffs who have life-changing disabling injuries, whereas APOL is an organization representing all personal injury lawyers. Um, uh, involving all claims, including those that are uh, much more short-lived. The first issue I was going to address was, was how should the discount rate be set to ensure full compensation? And Focus continue to view the Wells and Wells formula as the best and most appropriate way to achieve that. Uh, it's the only methodology that avoids plaintiffs being exposed to both investment and inflation risk. And we've, we've talked a lot about investment risk today. We've hardly touched upon inflation risk at all. But actually, if you look back historically to what concerned the courts and wells and wells, actually it was the impact of inflation, particularly over the long periods of time that have been mentioned, which was one of their main worries and, and why they actually favored index linked guilts um, as a proxy for the calculation. And it only ever was a proxy. It was not actually intended to represent how plaintiffs would invest their money. It was meant to be a simple method for the courts to calculate the losses um, that, that would re remove investment risk and speculating about investment risk or how, how plaintiffs might invest and also remove that inflation risk. Now, the debates around fixing the discount rate in England, Scotland and now Northern Ireland have tended to focus around the fear of overcompensation despite there being no credible evidence at all that that has ever been the case under the Wells and Wells regime. Even if you might be able to find a small proportion of plaintiffs who perhaps got very lucky with both the timing and the type of investments they made, those individuals, of course, don't share their good luck with the plaintiffs whose money ran out, um, which you can, of course, con contrast with the insurance model, which does exactly that. Insurers do spread the risk of claims across a whole book and they spread them across insurance premiums for policyholders. And that's why insurers are so much better placed to carry investment risk than individual plaintiffs are. But if the law is to change to force seriously injured plaintiffs to take the investment risk, this debate really needs to look at the flip side of alleged overcompensation. And we need to be asking ourselves the fundamental question of what proportion of plaintiffs do we consider it fair to potentially go undercompensated? And that's an issue that, that unfortunately has, has often been overlooked in, in these debates in, in all of the UK jurisdictions. Now, the conceptual difficulty with attempts to seek coherent evidence on plaintiff investment behaviour is that any such evidence would be skewed by examples of the old and markedly unfair rate of 2.5% that... that was left as it was for far too long. Um, and that rate effectively forced plaintiffs and their advisors to either take more risk to ensure their needs were met for life or cut back on expenditure so some needs went unmet or turn to state to plug the gap. Um, and that's the theme I'm going to be returning to. In any event, looking at past investment markets and related investor behaviours, a fundamentally flawed approach in my view, to predicting likely future investment climate and related plaintiff investment behaviour. Now, Focus uh, considers the 2015 report on the discount rate, which was commissioned by the Ministry of Justice for a panel of four experts to really be the most credible evidence on what a notional investment portfolio might look like if you go down that route. Now, the majority of that panel, which included an economist, um, actuary and investment advisors, 
was that any truly low-risk portfolio would require at least 75% investments in index-linked gilts, with the remaining 25% invested between UK corporate bonds, global government inflation-linked bonds, and global equities, and that any other asset classes posed unacceptable levels of risk. Conversely, where we've got to in Scotland, and now as proposed in the draft bill for Northern Ireland, is for a notional portfolio that only has 10% invested in ILGS and a further 15% in nominal gilts. Now, the experience of our members when advising plaintiffs with significant injuries is that most will leave far in excess of the 10% assumed in this notional portfolio simply in the bank or the building society, especially in early years. They also typically have to use significant sums to carry out adaptations to make their accommodation disability um, accessible um, before they can even start to think about investing the remainder. And so the ultimate amount invested is less than the amount of the damages. And many of the investments are actually delayed for, for numerous years. Um, and so actually generating an investment return um, is on a small and for a shorter period of time. One of my main points I'd really like to make today is that requiring an injured person to gamble with their compensation award by investing in high-risk assets places an unacceptable burden on them and perversely removes a key aspect of the responsibility providing, for providing adequate compensation from the wrongdoer. Now, picking up on a few of the points made notably by FOIL this morning, um, I would say the proposed 0.5% adjustment to moderate undercompensation is welcome, but actually doesn't go far enough. Um, the, the, um, uh, the government actuary, when advising the Lord Chancellor in the report you were referred to immediately prior to setting the rate in England and Wales, suggested the Lord Chancellor consider a, rate, a, a, a margin adjustment of between 0.25% and 0.75% to mitigate the incidence of undercompensation, accepting that to have 50% of people actually see their compensation run out wasn't really consistent with a full compensation principle. The Lord Chancellor, unsurprisingly, simply picked the midpoint, 0.5%, now, in that same report, the government actually provided a really helpful graph that showed even with that 0.5% adjustment, you'd still see about a third of plaintiffs run out of the compensation before the end of their lifetime, uh, and a worrying 22% would suffer a shortfall of 10% or more. Now, in serious injury claims, that could leave them unable to fund their care and equipment needs for many years. Uh, and I ask you, does that really sound like full compensation for those individuals? Um, so, I strongly disagree with the suggestion from Foyle this morning that the composition of the portfolio already avoids undercompensation for individual plaintiffs. Um, and if the wrongdoer does not compensate adequately, then the responsibility shifts initially to the injured person, but ultimately probably falls back on the state to make up their shortfall. And I'd say insurers are in a much better position to aggregate their funds and hedge their exposed investment risks and fluctuations in the financial markets than any individual plaintiff. Now, turning to the cost of investment advice and taxation, um, Focus views the proposed adjustment of 0.75% um, as far too low and likely to compound under compensation. 
we were one of the only organizations to submit data on this initially to the MOJ in 2019 for the debates in England and Wales, and then resubmitted uh, to this assembly. We obtained that data from our members and the professional deputies and trustees, personal injury trusts, concerning investment charges actually incurred by their clients in recent years. And we then commissioned Ian Gunn of Personal Financial Planning, who'd actually been a member of the MOJ's expert panel in 2015, to, to analyze the charges on those client portfolios. And they uh, produced the data sheet, which we've submitted, um, which is based on 389 clients, nine different firms, very wide range of settlement amounts from 67,000 right up to 7.45 million. And the result was an average of the total investment charges of 1.58%, so very significantly above the 0.75%. And perhaps what was more telling was only f less than 5% of those portfolios had charges of 1% or less. That was actually more than counterbalanced by the 6% that had charges of more than 2%. And so the overwhelming majority fell in that range of, of 1% to 2% and, and tended to cluster around one5 And those are just the investment management charges. We mustn't forget the additional impact of tax. Um, and once that is factored in, um, uh, I think there really is a compelling case that that adjustment should be one and a half to two percent, um, not 0.75 percent. Now, I noted that FOIL and the CBI indicated this morning they'd chosen not to reduce evidence on this point, but with respect and given the resources they've applied to this issue in all of the UK jurisdictions, I think you can safely conclude that if they'd been able to find reliable data of lower investment management charges for plaintiffs, then they really would have submitted it. Um, now, I mentioned inflation earlier, and I just want to come back to that briefly, um, because uh, some plaintiffs will have been effectively forced to take investment risk because the cost of meeting their needs increased beyond the basis on which their claim was settled. Um, and one of the main reasons this happens is the effect of real earnings growth and inflation on disability-related items due to the specialist nature of those products which do not necessarily increase consistently with the RPI or even CPI. Our members' experiences in the, in the most serious injury claim, damages for care and case management account for 50% or more of the plaintiff's damages. And once you then factor in the loss of earnings claims as well, and medical and therapeutic costs, which tend to be heavily earnings related, then the weighting perhaps goes to 70% or more. And it's been well established by the courts in the periodical payment regime in the UK um, through the case of Thompson and Tameside and the cases that preceded it and the decision of the Privy Council in the Guernsey case of Helmut and Simon, the earnings inflation in the long term rises at an average of at least 1.5% per annum more than prices inflation. And if you compound that over decades, that has an enormous effect. So we contend that the proposed RPI provision for Northern Ireland is the minimum acceptable inflationary adjustment. And if the alternative of CPI were ever contemplated, that would then require an adjustment of at least 1% to, to rebalance that position. Next, I would briefly mention longevity risk, another issue that hasn't really featured large in this debate. But all investment advisors, and indeed their plaintiff clients, have to plan for the very real possibility that they might actually exceed their life expectancy. And so they have to invest accordingly. 
Now, there are readily available, highly credible statistics concerning longevity, which the Office of National Statistics prepares. So we contend that GAV really ought to have factored them into their analysis and modelling. Now, to illustrate the point, if you look at the ONS stats for a 20-year-old man in England and Wales, you'll see they've got a predicted life expectancy to age 86. But if you look further at the stats, you'll see there's actually a 25% chance they'll live a further 10 years to 96. Um, so something needs to be done about that. That's a risk that plaintiffs take. And if it's not modelled into uh, to these and, uh, and otherwise adjusted for, then we would say there really ought to be a further contingency adjustment of, say, 0.5% to allow for, for that real risk. And, and that is a point that I'll mention again when we talk about periodical payments. Um, but just to be clear, this is, this is an additional risk over and above 0.5% investment portfolio under compensation margin. Um, there's been some debate about um, the advantages and disadvantages of transferring responsibility of setting the rates um, uh, to the government actuary. Uh, and Focus's view is the method of calculating the discount rate really ought to be depoliticized. The discount rate has been set at inappropriate levels for many, many years. Um, but it's clear that on every occasion, a discount rate adjustment has been contemplated, whether in Northern Ireland, Scotland or England and Wales. Uh, the relevant minister has been largely reliant on the government actually to actually calculate what that rate ought to be. And so having a formula predetermined by the legislation and empowering the government actually to review and implement the revised rate creates transparency which is going to be important for all plaintiffs in Northern Ireland. And that's been recognised by the Scottish legislation. Um, I'm picking up on a point I heard this morning. Uh, if I'm reading the draft bill correctly, sections 8, 15 and 16, in fact, the DOJ, rather than the government actuary, has the power to pass regulations to amend the notional portfolio or indeed to amend the assumed 43-year period. Um, so, so I don't feel the draft bill is currently giving too much power to the government actuary. Actually, I would contend there ought to be a requirement um, for the appointment of an, of an expert panel, rather similar to the one appointed by the MOJ in 2015, involving at the least an economist, an investment advisor and an actuary before amending any of those regulations is contemplated. So just a few concluding thoughts. Um, any of the models of fixing the discount rate are simply proxies for calculating compensation. They've never been intended to match investment behaviour, which will obviously vary considerably from plaintiff to plaintiff. Uh, the Scottish model is preferable to the English model, but both represent a significant departure from no risk for compensation. With the current 0.5% under compensation adjustment, the new discount rate in Northern Ireland will be less negative than the current Wells and Wells-based discount rate. So compensation and the cost of compensators will go down, not up. Um, that would likely still be the case, even if you accepted the submissions we've made today, that there ought to be a larger undercompensation adjustment and or a more realistic adjustment for investment management charges and tax. So compensators will be saving money, not spending more money, whichever way you go with this, it seems to me, unless you leave it with Wells and Wells, as it is. Um, I find the points made about PPOs this morning highly surprising, and I'm going to leave it to Una to more directly relate to the Northern Ireland experience. 
but the overwhelming experience of the focus members is that most insurers are really reluctant to offer PPOs. It's like pulling teeth, getting them to do so. Um, and often they will take plaintiffs right to the door of the court before they're even willing to switch from a lump sum offer to a PPO. Now, I say some, there are exceptions to that, and I'll acknowledge there are some more forward-thinking insurers who do occasionally uh, offer PPOs more readily and more early. Um, but the reason why the majority don't is because they know the long-term cost of taking the investment inflationary and longevity risk is greater than the cost of any of these discount rates that we're talking about. Um, and we shouldn't also forget that PPOs, when they're offered, only tend to relate to one of the many heads of loss, typically care and case management. Um, so um, there's no excuse for setting the discount rate at a level that will result in undercompensation for a third or more of the plaintiffs, as, as I've mentioned, would result even with the 0.5% undercompensation margin adjustment. And finally, we should all be thankful the incidence of lifelong disabling injuries that result in calculation that, that significantly engages the discount rate is excruciatingly rare. The vast majority of claims relate to injuries that only have a short to medium term impact and so do not have a significant future loss claim. Um, the impact of a fair discount rate on insurance premiums um, uh, would be spread across all policyholders uh, and they, um, whether they be consumers or businesses, would hardly notice the difference. Conversely, if the discount rate is set too low, then the adverse impact on those who've wrongly sustained the life-changing injuries is just profound. Impacts on their families and, as I've mentioned, in all likelihood falls back on the state to prop them up um, and hence falls back on the taxpayers. Um, so thank you very much for giving me the time to make those points. Julian, thank you, and that's been comprehensive, and you've helpfully addressed some of the points raised in the previous session, which I wanted to ask you about, but uh, you have dealt with them. So uh, can I bring in Una at this stage? And Una, you're very welcome to the meeting, and if you're able just to speak to your submission briefly, and then we'll move to questions. Thank you. Thanks, Una. Thank you, Mr. Chair, members of the committee. Thank you for inviting us along today to speak to you. Um, April is a not-profit organisation which campaigns on behalf of injured people. It lobbies for changes in the law relating to personal injury and it campaigns for um, fair and full compensation for all injured people. Whilst I appreciate the committee are today um, discussing the draft legislation before it, and I note the Chair's comments in relation to that, April remains of the view that the best way of calculating uh, the discount rate is by using the method as set out in Wells v Wells um, and that moving away from that methodology risks leaving people undercompensated for injuries which uh, were caused by someone else's fault. Um, under the current methodology, and I appreciate the committee have heard a lot of discussion about this today, um, the injured person is assumed to be risk adverse or very low risk. APA believes that this is the best way of ensuring that a person receives 100% full compensation. Um, injured people, by the very nature, are not canny investors. Um, they shouldn't be hedging risks, as was referred to this morning. Um, they're not investing, as Julian said, to make a gain. Um, they're investing to make sure their compensation lasts for the period of time which it is supposed to last. Um, and puts them as much as possible in a position that they would have been in financially had the accident not occurred. Um, 
people who receive compensation do so because their injuries have been caused um, by someone else and um, through no uh, fault of their own. Um, in moving away from the principle of wells be wells, the department is assuming that injured people um, are now not just risk adverse or very low risk, but uh, low risk investors. If the department stayed with the wells be wells methodology, then this legislation would be unnecessary. Um, the department now has set an interim rate under the wells be wells calculation, um, and that could have been the position without the necessity uh, for this legislation and this discussion. Um, turning to the draft legislation, April would make the following points. Um, we support, if the legislation is introduced, the um, ado adoption of the Scottish model. Uh, we believe that removing the possibility of political interference is the preferable situation uh, for Northern Ireland. Um, and it ensures that the rate is not influenced by any certain political agenda. Having the uh, transparency of the notional portfolio uh, in the legislation again is, is welcomed. Um, again, the proposed legislation, unlike the English and Wales model, does not require the investment behaviour of injured people to be considered, and we believe that to be a good thing. Um, as has been pointed out by Julian, there is still political accountability, and the department retains the, the uh, responsibility for setting the methodology, um, and we believe that is appropriate. Um, the other point that we have mentioned in our uh, submission is that we believe that the rate of 0.75 for taxation and investment price to be on the low side. Um, we believe that having spoken to a number of independent financial advisors, that the appropriate rate would be 1.5%. Um, um, apparently, we are informed by IPAs that the lower the sum, the higher the cost of the investment. Um, so if there's anything further that the, the committee would like to ask, I'm happy to take questions. Okay, Una, thank you. Thank you very much um, for that. Uh, and again, you've outlined very clearly the position of your organisation in respect to that. If you want both of you just pick up on, on the one point I just want to address, and this has been the argument around the accountability of the systems in terms of the Scottish approach against the English and Welsh approach, where it's a political decision around the, the rate that's being struck. Well, why do you view it as a more actuarial task as opposed to one that should have a political role um, in reaching a decision on the rate? Well, it is quite sorry, Julian, to cut across. It is quite a complex calculation, and I mean, what I think the point here is that once the methodology is set out, there is no reason for um, politics to become involved in that. The department retains, as been pointed out, the um, power to alter that methodology or the emotional portfolio or the rates of um, the additional rates that have been mentioned so far, if it feels that's necessary. Um, and that will remain so. So, the other calculating it is really a matter for actuaries to look at the returns on investment as they are at that time. Okay, thanks, Una. Um, Lin Linda Dillon, please. Thank you, Chair. Thank you to, to both of you for your presentations. Um, just in relation to the PPOs, um, I'm just wondering 
I mean, I suppose I'm trying to get to the bottom of this. I can't quite figure out who, who is more for them and who is pushing back on them. I would have thought that it would have been the insurers that should have been um, keen because it is a way of, I think, getting 100% compensation and, and less risky for, for them. But I accept that there are administration costs and, and, and all of that comes with it. In terms of the injured, the injured person, I was concerned that that their real fears around that would be what would happen if if something happened to the person or the company or, or organisation that's paying out to them. But we've been assured this morning that that is protected. Is it your understanding that it's protected? Um, and is it your understanding that there would be more plaintiffs who would be keen to get PPOs, but that insurance companies are not? responding positively to that to those requests and certainly my experience would be that um sorry first of all dealing with the first part in the majority of cases yes the fs uh, step in and protect but there will be the odd case where that it doesn't happen um, and that person may be left without um, compensation in relation to the use of ppos they're very rare um, very rarely offered, and um, as, I, as Julian, I think, has pointed out, the reason seems to be that the insurers like to have the risk management off the books as opposed to an ongoing situation. Um, to be honest, also, um, dealing with injured people every day, they find the whole court process uh, emotionally draining, exhausting, very stressful. And when they get to the end of it, they almost like to cut that tie. They don't really want to have their lives managed or a connection uh, with something that they find very difficult at the time. So they'd rather, in my view, take, take a lump sum and maybe move on. But in, in reality, they're rarely offered. Yeah, I, I, I can understand that, that want to just take the lump sum and move on, to be honest with you. And, and people don't like the, the court process and that whole, and totally get that because it, it can be a very long drawn out process and I understand that. However, where's the safeguarding and, and I mean this is probably something that Sinead Bradley to be fair has, has raised previously and may well want to raise again but where's the safeguarding in that then for somebody who is potentially vulnerable and open to being abused around their finances mm. if they get on so. If, if I can maybe pick that up, I mean, yeah. if, if anything, I would say periodical payments do add a safeguard for, mm -hmm. the, for the vulnerable. I mean, the truly vulnerable, if they lack mental capacity, will will likely have have their award managed uh, by the court of protection, um, and so they will have a professional deputy. Um, uh, the but but the next class down of sort of. Um, inexperienced investors and, and most of our clients have no past investment experience um does you know if they're if they're being asked to go off and invest very very large lump sums yes they are at risk of, of getting bad advice or people trying to take advantage of them mm -hmm. and that is that is a serious risk um that, that goes with the regime um periodical payments are one way of moderating that but it only applies usually to one head of claim they're not suitable for all claims mm -hmm. uh, personally I, i'm very pro ppo i've concluded a number of claims for, for clients um on a periodical payment basis um but as i've already indicated i've had numerous other clients where, where we've sought ppos but the insurers have refused to offer them 
or, cer or certainly at least uh, multiple rounds of negotiation and, and us hanging on in on our client's behalf to sort of fight that corner to achieve them. And, and coming back to your point, well, why is that? Why, why aren't insurers offering them more readily? It's because they cost them more. The, the, it's a numbers game for the insurers. They know that the cost of hedging their exposure to providing periodical payments for the rest of the life for that plaintiff will cost them more for absolutely the same reasons that we're debating um, as to why the discount rate needs to be set at a low level and not involve significant investment risk, inflationary risk, etc. cetera. Um, because those are the risks that compound over the time and cost a lot of money over time. Um, and it is, as I say, it is quite telling that insurers will, even when contrasted with a Wells and Wells discount rate, most insurers would prefer to offer our clients a lump sum than to offer them a periodical payment. Okay, that, that, that's helpful. Thank you very much. Um, then just in relation to the um, 30 versus 43 years, um, and I mean, I, I, I take on board the point that you've made. However, um, one of the only things that we probably have evidence around is the, is the 43 years. Everything else is notional and, and up to interpretation from 50 different angles, to be honest with you. Um, and, and as I think some members alluded to earlier, I think it was Rachel said, the more, the more we read into this and the more presentations we get, actually, the more complex it can, it can become. But I'm just wondering, you know, the 43 years is, is based on evidence. So why would the pushback be on that? Either Julian or you know, whichever. And I suppose, well, if you've taken the, the legislation that to a certain extent copies the, or takes the Scottish legislation or somebody that deviated mm -hmm. from it on that point and gone to the 43 years, which is different from England. I mean, taking what was said earlier on from, um, I think it was maybe Kevin Boyle, but this figure is based on the average life expectancy. But that's an average. And again, it's, it's not accurate. Yeah. It's, it's an average. So some people are li li living for more, but some people are living for less. Um, and we struck an average at 43 years. Um, it seems like a long time, maybe for a birth injury case, we could see that. But for other people with serious catastrophic injuries, whose injuries will develop additional complications, you know, and some be unforeseen, that seems like quite a significant period of time. I, I'm not clear why the 30 years was adopted by Scotland. It may have been that they assumed that that was the lowest rate of, of um, survival as opposed to an average, as it were. You know, that most people survived over 30 years um, might be how they, how they came to that figure. But again, 43 years is an average. It's not you know, guaranteed. I'm, I'm, I'm sceptical about the evidence about the 43 years. I know you do, you know, you do say you have evidence. It's certainly out of kelter with the experience of our members especially on the claims involving the most serious injuries. So it may be that that data is skewed by people with more moderate injuries mm -hmm. um, uh, who, who are the ones who have a lesser you know, impact of the discount rate. Um, but really cutting through it, actually, when you look at the, the GADS modeling, I think this point's already been made this morning, doesn't actually make that much difference. So I, I don't think it's a make or break 
uh, provision here is nowhere near as important as as the other points we've okay. we've been discussing. Um, the portfolio is more the composition of the portfolio is more important. The undercompensation adjustments more important. Inflation is more important. Yeah. Difference in thirty and forty three years actually doesn't doesn't materially change the discount rate you actually end up with. Okay, that, that that's fair enough. Thank you very much to, to both of you, to Julian and Anna for your, your answers, Chair. That those are all my questions for now. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. We can bring Sinead Bradley into the spotlight, please. Thank you. Thanks, Chair, and thanks to Julian and Anna. Um, at the outset, I suppose I want to um, I suppose it's based on something you said, Julian. In terms of our assumptions, the piece that we're looking at is the discount rate. So am I right to have made the assumption that a judgment has already been made in terms of the individual plaintiff? So for example, their age, their potential earnings, their um, the requirements of degenerative health conditions, um, and you talked about longevity and their um, anticipated lifespan. And is is it fair to assume that a lot of that has already been determined in the reaching of what the settlement is? It, and the piece that we're looking at then is sorry is is about the the discount rate, meaning that you know obviously I take your point about it that the plaintiff shouldn't have to carry the risk of being becoming an investor overnight. You know after such a trauma. But it does speak to the fact that once you hold a significant amount of money, there will be a, a return on that. So it's trying to just rebalance the books. But is it fair to make that assumption that the taxation piece that you talk about, and sorry, the inflation piece that you talk about, has been considered at that point? So no, uh, the in the awards that are either made by the court or are agreed between the parties by way of uh, by way of settlement um, are assume current day values. So if someone's loss of earnings at that point in time is twenty five thousand pounds, that's what we call the multiplicand to which we will then apply the multiplier uh -huh. um, for whatever their working lifetime would have been to to calculate their loss of earnings. And the same would apply for. Um, a lifetime loss. Let's say you had someone who had a care package that cost them £50,000 a year and they were aged 20 and they had a predicted life expectancy for, for 50 years, say. Um, the multiplier is derived using the discount rate. And the discount rate is, is, the, is a very significant component in working out what that multiplier will be. It's, the multiplier is the combination of what is the period of loss coupled with what's the ensued investment return, net of inflation, net of investment charges and tax. So we do need to take into account inflation and investment charges and tax when we set the discount rate. That's, that's really, really important, um, which is why it may seem odd that we've got negative discount rates, because as you, you said, I think, in your question, you know, you assume people make a re positive return on their lump sum. But actually, once you if, if you're talking about low risk investments um, and you look at the figures we've ended up with in England and Scotland, actually, once you do adjust for inflation and you do adjust for investment management charges and tax, even on what I would say were, were, were rather insurer friendly adjustments, 
um, you still get to a negative figure. So actually the value of the money goes down in time, not up. Okay. Okay, so it's I just unconscious that, you know, you're talking about the, the inflation pace alongside um, the impact of taxation. And on the bill here, it's separated out, you know, as um, yeah. two separate pieces. And to my mind, the, the department does hold more of a lever over the taxation pace and the cost of investment and management as rather than the um the inflation pace so you then mentioned a third of plaintiffs running out of compensation and i didn't quite catch that and um, julian because you know thankfully you you rightly said these are small numbers of people thankfully um but we are flying blind here in terms of a lot of the data because you know there, there is no monitoring or we, we certainly haven't been privy to any set of data that shows us the realities of what people actually go off to do with their settlements and whether it reaches um you know the the end of life as as has been anticipated but you mentioned then a third of plaintiffs run out of compensation can you elaborate a little bit more on that for me please Yes, I can. Just, just taking your, the first point you made first, my, um, I wasn't meaning to conflate inflation with investment management charges and tax. Investment, yeah. my, investment management charges and tax go together, and yeah. that's currently the 0.75% adjustment, which yeah. I said should be more like 1.5% or even okay. 2%. Separately, there are the inflation provisions in the draft bill. I agree they should be separate. Uh, the, the point I was really just flagging there is is um, there is a debate raging separately about discontinuing RPI. Um, and if that were to happen and we were to switch to CPI, then you would need to make an adjustment. And that relates to uh, the earnings inflation because the, the losses that, that personal injury plaintiffs sustain are not your typical shopping basket. Okay. They're very heavily weighted around paying for care, paying for medical treatment, disability aids and equipment, etc. Yeah, sorry, and just while you're on that point, I think you're uh, revealing about the PPOs did shine a bit of light on a situation yeah. on that that we otherwise weren't overly aware of, so appreciate that. Yeah. So then coming to the, the, the thing about my reference to a third being undercompensated, even with the 0.5% undercompensation margin adjustment, which the Lord Chancellor applied in England and then was also used in Scotland and, and features in the draft bill here in Northern Ireland. That's based on a graph that came from the Government Actuary Department in the report that immediately preceded um, setting the rate for England. There was a similar graph actually in the Government Actuary's earlier report to the MOJ at the, uh, right at the, the start of the latest discount rate adjustment process. Um, which illustrated the same point, and I'll gladly send you that report and, and, and highlight where the graph is. But, but it was that graph was tied into the government actually saying to the Lord Chancellor, "Look, you know, you you could just say fifty percent of plaintiffs uh, seeing their compensation last their lifetime is full compensation, but actually." Lots of people would say, but hang on, what about the other 50%? They're, they're, they're inherently undercompensated. And that's, so, so to provide full compensation, it's not really acceptable for 50% of those people, all of whom are individuals, and so don't, don't pool their funds to go undercompensated. We need to do better than that. 
the government actually uh, showed the impact of that on the modeling he'd done for, for the investment portfolio in England, um, either taking a 0.25% adjustment or a 0.75% adjustment. The Lord Chancellor split the difference right from the mid, mid figure of 0.5%. When you look at that on the graph, what I'm, what I'm saying to you is, even with that adjustment, at least it meant it was no longer 50% of people undercompensated, but you still had about a third of them undercompensated, which still begs the question, is that full compensation? Now, I took one of these cases to the Court of Appeal, actually, in, in Bermuda, but it's a common law regime, and it's based on Wells and Wells. And in that case, the, the Court of Appeal judges accepted that anything much more than 5% of undercompensation wouldn't, in their view, be a full compensation system. That was their more kind of Wells and Wells style thinking. Um, and so, and, and I accept this is, this is probably the political question, you know, what, what level of people are you willing to tolerate being undercompensated and still claim to maintain a full compensation system? I say it should be nowhere near 50%. In fact, I say even a third is too high. It should be really quite a small number, if, if any. Um, but, you know, there it is. Um, but I'll happily send you that graph. Yeah, I would appreciate the graph, but also if you have the underlying data, what is this a sample of cases that were taken? Is it, you know, what is the sample size? Or just to understand more thoroughly how, how that was arrived at. It, I'll send it to you because it's part okay. of the Government Actuary Department's main report and it's based off the, the modelling they did with their modelling software that runs thousands of different permutations. But it is all hypothetical. None of it is based on real data. Okay. Yeah, and, that's, yeah, that's the difficulty in this, Julian. I think that although we're talking about, thankfully, a small number, there doesn't seem to be any data capture or grab on the reality, everything is notional, hypothetical, and plotted out, you know. Um, so, yeah, it can be, I suppose we are flying blind in a lot of ways. Um, but thank you, and thank you, Chair. Okay, thank you. Um, Julian and Una, can I both thank you for agreeing, first of all, at my request to, to join together to do that presentation, because that was just helpful for us logistically. And I'm sure if there's other issues that we want to come back to you both on, we will follow that up in due course. So thank you both for joining with the committee today. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, members, um, the next evidence session is going to be on the stocking bill, and that neatly just takes us to uh, quarter past one, and we're going to break for half an hour, and we will reconvene at um, a quarter to two, and we'll move into the next oral evidence session, which will be um, from the Scottish Charity Action Against Stocking. Okay, members, so we'll suspend the meeting for 30 minutes. Thank you. The Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber 
Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber 
program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program
program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber 
Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber 
program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber 
Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Program signed. 
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. 
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. 
This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly Senate Chamber Programme Sound. Okay, members, you're welcome back to a meeting of the Justice Committee. Um, just before we go into the next evidence session on the stalking uh, bill, if I can just bring Linda Dillon in, the Vice Chair at this stage. Thank you, Linda. Chair, thank you very much. I, I appreciate it. I, I tried to get in under matters arising, but um, I think that you thought my hand was still up from the from the previous time, so I, I really appreciate you allowing me in. I have to leave the meeting at 2 o'clock to go and do a, a be on a panel discussion, which I committed to about six months ago, so apologies for that. But I did just want to, to refer back to the matters arising the Justice Bill. And we raised, I've raised this at the last number of committee meetings, I've raised it in the Chamber. I have serious concerns that we're at the point now, if the Justice Bill does not get to the committee and to the Chamber, that we're not going to get this through in this mandate. It's something that I've raised since the very beginning of, of my time on the committee, whenever the Minister outlined what pieces of legislation would be coming, hopefully, to the committee. And there are a number of really important issues, not least around sexual and domestic violence. It's been a priority for the Minister. It's been a priority for this committee. And I don't want us to lose this opportunity. So I suppose I am going to make the point to, to yourself and to um, Paul Frey, our other committee colleague, is I've been very vociferous in this committee that everything that can be brought to the committee and brought through the Assembly should be. And I'm going to ask this in, in all seriousness and, and very genuinely to use whatever influence you have whenever you go into the executive to get that justice bill to this committee and to get it here as quickly as possible. I think it's really, really important that we get this moved. And I suppose I'm just appealing to you in, in, in light of your new role and, and of Paul Frey's new role, that you will use whatever influence you have in that new role. And just to add that um, I I don't think this will be your last committee, Chair, but um, I do wish you all the best in, in, in your new roles. But I would ask that one of the priority items on your agenda would be the Justice Bill and to get it to the Justice Committee and whoever the new members on the committee will be. Thank you. The, the, the point's well made, Linda, and um, certainly in terms of the contents of that bill and the Justice Bill, and there's a lot of very good um, pieces of legislation in that that we want to take forward. And um, goes without saying, having had this rule, I'll want to make sure that we can get that matter resolved as quickly as possible so that we do get a bill brought forward before the summer recess in respect of that. But um, nevertheless, um, there's a piece of work to be done just to get that executive uh, reformed again. I uh, appreciate your best wishes in terms of the, the future role in respect of that. Um, and I'll, I'll do what I can. And the message has been received. 
I appreciate that. Can I, can I make one small point in relation to the informal hearings on the Stockton Bill? Sure. I, I appreciate that um, we all probably need a bit of time off, but I think that as they are informal hearings and we don't need a full committee um, set up and in terms of staff, committee staff, we don't need all of the staff to be available to do them. If it were possible to do those all before September, I think that that would be helpful to everybody. Um, you know, not least potentially the staff to be able to get that out of the way over over the summer months. And I really do think we're only talking about a couple of sessions, so it, I think it would be helpful if we could get them out of the way. And that's that's um, with consideration for any additional workload that would put on the staff. So if it is not possible because of workload on the committee staff, then it's not something that I want to 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 do is to put them under pressure. But if it's going to be in any way helpful, I think it certainly would be helpful to us as committee members. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. Okay, members, let's move to the um, oral evidence session then. And we have the founder and chief executive of the Scottish charity Action Against Stalking joining mm -hmm. via the Starley facility um, to discuss how the Scottish offensive stalking is working from the perspective of practitioners on the ground. Um, so can I welcome Anne Moulds, founder and chief executive, uh, to the meeting. And we record this by Hans Hard and publish it on uh, our webpage in due course. So if I can hand over to yourself, Anne, to give us a brief outline of the issues, and then we will move into a question and answer session. Thank you, Anne. Yes, thank you, Mr Chairman. Yes, um, thank you very much for inviting me here today to give evidence to the Northern Ireland Assembly. My name is Anne Moulds, founder and chief executive of the charity Action Against Stalking. The charity came out of a campaign that I led in 2009 to have stalking introduced as a criminal offence into Scottish law. Up until that time, there was no such crime as stalking. Um, any behaviours um, were prosecuted under breach of the peace, but very rarely did, did anything um, that constituted stalking ever get prosecuted in Scotland. Um, so that was in 2010, the introduction of uh, the offence of stalking into the Criminal Justice and Licensing Act 2010. I then took the campaign to England and Wales and was successful in having the offence of stalking introduced into the 1997 Harassment Act. And I took the campaign across Europe and managed to get stalking recognised by the Council of Europe's Istanbul Treaty as Section 34. And that places a requirement of all European member states to codify stalking into criminal law because um, of the success of the, the legislation um, and the recognition of harmful and abusive behaviour as the governing criteria of an offence, placing the onus onto victims and the spotlight. Um, it was also mechanistic in the Scottish Government's decision to strengthen the European Directive for Victims and Witnesses and place these within statutory um, law. So that's the background of campaign action against stalking. So I'm delighted to be here um, to to give you um, some information on on your protect stalking protection bill. Okay. Well, thank you for those opening remarks. A uh, couple of questions just um, from me. In terms of your experience, what would you believe is the most important thing that can be put in place for victims of stalking? 
Well, the, well, it's a, an offence of stalking uh, to criminalise this behaviour. And when when this when I was taking through the stalk the offence of stalking, um, that was the template model. It was a listed model uh, offence that I was looking at. And what was important was to take it out of harassment. Stalking is not harassment. It's a it's got a different mode, motive, and perspective. And we had to differentiate. Um, what are two very similar but completely different concepts um, to try and clear up any conceptual confusion. So it was important to give the crime a name, stalking, that's what it is, to name the crime. And that would be fair not only to the police, to the victim, to those working in the criminal justice service, but also to the perpetrator as well. At least they are left in no doubt the crime that has been committed. Okay, thank you. Um, and in, in terms of the way in which the Scottish legislation has been implemented, would you have any views as to its success or otherwise, or are there things that we should be alert to that we, we need to learn from? Well, the, the legislation has come under review and it's never required any amendments. It does what it says on the tin. One of the challenges um, of bringing in a, a robust, strong piece of legislation was to try and transcend the complexity of this type of crime. And that's what this piece of legislation aimed to do. It fits neatly onto an A4 piece of paper. We don't even try and define the crime. There is no overall consensus uh, to uh, 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 an academic, clinical or legal um, definition of stalking because of the wide range of behaviours that constitute this crime. The majority of stalkers never commit criminal offences. Um, they're normal social behaviours that we all engage in every day. So but placed within a stalking context are, are, are less than harmful. Um, so we had to make the, the legislation very robust, very clear and very concise. So rather than limiting the scope of the offence, what we decided to do was place an operational definition of the offence, which is two or more behaviours um, that um, define a course of conduct that give rise to feelings of alarm and concern or fear and alarm within the victim. Um, and these behaviours are either um, deliberate or reckless, because what we know is an awful lot of stalkers don't ever set out to give you know, trigger off fear and alarm in their victim. That's not their intention. So we could not have that used as a loophole within a court of law, not knowing is not a defence within this piece of legislation. The other powerful point about the legislation is that um, it's very clear, very concise, and also lists a set of categories that most stalking behaviours can fit into. Section 6J of the legislation uh, means it's a non-exhaustive list, so that captures any new or innovative behaviours that stalkers will employ. One of the biggest trends of this piece of legislation is that the Section 39 is a higher test case offence. 
only capturing those behaviours that constitute stalking. But as we know, stalkers are, are highly manipulative, highly deviant. It's a very ambiguous type of offence. And to try and close any loopholes within the legislation, plus to also give Procurator Fiscals the confidence to use the legislation, um, we decided to embed Section 38 of the Criminal Justice and Licensing Act into the legislation as an inferred differential. In other words, the Procurator Fiscal could quite confidently use the Section 39 at a case. If that key uh, did not stand in a court of law, it would automatically defer on Section 38, which is embedded within their fence. That is a prohibition piece of legislation for abusive and harmful behaviour. It's a catch-all piece of legislation, um, not unlike the 1997 Harassment Act, which has had a very broad scope, very wide application. And so we use that as the, 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 the safety net catch-all. Um, and, and that's the strength. It's so clear, so robust, so concise. It's an operational definition. It's the ABC of stalking. Um, and we, f we believe that this is probably the most robust piece of stalking, in, uh, stalking legislation in the world today. It has worked even before um, the police received any training on this crime. Uh, they were able to understand that piece of legislation. It was so easily, so written in layman's jargon that, that even if victims were contacting me, um, claiming that the police didn't understand or they didn't recognise this as stalking, I would actually give that victim um, or send that victim the, the legislation and ask them to take it down to the police station and say, just show this to the police. And that was all that was needed. So it means that everyone can understand what stalking is. It's so, so clear. And that's the power of this legislation. The other um, powerful aspect of this legislation is that it's a two-part crime. Uh, number one, there's the, the stalker's behaviours, which uh, constitute a course of conduct. That would be two or more behaviours. And the second part of the crime is the impact on the victim. But these feeling, these behaviours give rise to uh, feelings of fear, alarm on the victim. Now, within this, the Scottish offence of stalking, that is subjective. It is defined by the victim. Um, whereas in the Section 38 and other um, wide-ranging prohibition pieces of legislation, it's usually an objective test. We did not want the objective test. As soon as a, a victim feels fearful or alarm that the behaviours they are experiencing are persistent and unwanted, then that constitutes the offence of stalking. That's how simple it is. Okay, thank you. That's helpful. So let me just bring in some members, Anne, at this stage, if that's okay. And uh -huh. I want to, want to bring in is Gemma Dolan. Thanks, Chair, and thanks, Anne. Um, Anne, you mentioned that you work with the media um, to combat the crime of stalking. What role do you think the media has in combating stalking? 
The media plays a huge interest because one of the challenges we had was that stalking was one of those crimes, psychological harm and abuse. Um, always took backstage when it came to crimes of a physical nature. And that was the biggest challenge Challenge in, in getting the media to start um, helping people understand that the crimes of a psychological and abusive nature were every bit as serious. So the media have slowly come on board, although we do see physical crimes and, and victims being murdered, even though they've been stalked, still taking centre stage in the newspapers. As time has gone on, the newspapers are now recognising psychological abuse as being every bit as harmful. And it has helped um, educate the public to come forward. Yeah, very useful. We need the, we need the media. Yeah, um, that's a good point. I, I do agree. You know, they're, they're very influential, so it's important that they are saying the right things. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's kind of sticking with the theme of media, but social media. How do you think the government could better tackle the issue of cyber stalking? Well, I think they're struggling to do that just now because of the type of platform, the freedom of speech, again, stalking again, um, even on social media. Um, you know, most of the messages are quite harmless, it's the, but it's the unwanted and persistent contact that causes the victim a lot of problems. So what, what we found challenging to start with in having this crime recognised that police officers had a tendency to treat each incident as a single individual incident rather than the course of conduct. At the time when the offence of stalking came out, um, cyber stalking was, was not the emerging threat that it is now. And so it's not the legislation that's the problem. The problem is, the, the, is technology, and the police are just not up to speed with technology yet. And, you know, technology is always going to be faster than... Um, the slow response of our systems, if that makes sense. By the time we catch up, it's another 10 miles, 10 miles away. So stalkers are stalkers, um, an interconnecting medium and a, a system that's very slow to respond. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand. Um, but no, thank you for that, Anne, and um, well done on all the work you're doing. Um, Chair, that's my questions. Thank you. Thank you. Um, could I bring in Sinead Bradley, please? Thank you, Chair, and thanks, Anne, for your submission and your presentation. Um, Anne, you, you commented on, you know, the education piece about, you know, that the legislation was scripted in a way that a lay person could easily follow. And I appreciate your point on that. And also the fact that um, a victim reached out to you. And that's something we consistently see with a lot of legislation. It's the, the voluntary sectors and the charitable sectors who are there, who are pr probably a safe first port of call for mm -hmm. a lot of victims who may be feeling very vulnerable or even unsure about whether they are a victim of stalking. And I just wondered, based on that point, um, do you feel that there is, and I congratulate you personally, Anne, because I know you have worked very hard on, on this and have developed an organisation around it, but I'm just thinking on a regional level, do you think that there, there needs to be 
um, a specific support network built around this legislation for Northern Ireland. Um, and also, just to ask the question in terms of then, um, you know, we're we're looking at making gains in terms of a victims commissioner of some type here, and um, but the follow up pace, you know, the, the measuring of the actual success of the mm -hmm. legislation in terms of I know you mentioned a review is due to happen, Anne, but uh, do you have? Um, any evidence that the thresholds are set out are achievable, um, or are many of the uh, the cases fallen into the secondary crime, you know, where the threshold may have proven too high? Just any feedback on that, and who who yeah. who is charged with actually doing that? You know, to to monitor and gather that data. Well, well, number one, yes, very important questions. Number one, yes, I do think you need to have specialised services wrapped around this piece of legislation. What we find is that it's a very difficult crime to understand, to recognise. It's very complex. It does need specialised um, uh, knowledge. I mean, I've delivered training to the police. I, I, I helped the Crown Office develop their, tra their national training programme for all Crown Office staff across Scotland. So that was important. I've delivered training to sheriffs, to victim support services, to the NHS, because people could not get their head around this legislation, no matter how simple that piece of legislation it was. Um, so that's number one. And also because of the victims of stalking are a highly vulnerable group probably one of the most traumatised um, victims of crime due to the, the chron chronic nature of this type of crime. The infer threats aren't always overt. They're usually embedded as an inferred or cryptically encoded or symbolically recognised. And it's the drip, drip, drip effect on the victim through time. It's a very slow brutalisation of the victim's world. Now, we're not just looking at a a unitary construct here. We're looking at stalking as a standalone offence, and we're looking at it co-occurring with other crimes such as domestic abuse, human trafficking, sexual exploitation. We're looking at child abuse, child abduction, bullying, racial hatred crimes. So stalking covers the wide gamut of some of the most serious forms of violence. And we do need specialised services. What we're doing with Action Against Stalking in recognition of the trauma of this type of crime, the long-standing effects of this type of crime, and at present there's no research, um, is that we are now taking our service into to align with mental health services. We're employing professionally qualified mental health professionals. Um, and we hope to align with the uh, NHS agenda for change for health and social care, because we're seeing too many traumatised victims coming through. So that's number one, the Istanbul Treaty um, or the European Convention, Section 34, states specifically that there should be specialised services for victims of stalking. Now, I appreciate that we're not in uh, Europe any longer as a country, but nevertheless, it's still good practice. It's in recognition of this crime, um, of the complexity of it. And we are now receiving referrals from the police. We receive referrals from other support services in recognition 
um, that they do not hold the specialised knowledge that we we hold. So absolutely, without a doubt, I think um, to consider wrapping it around with specialised services, without a doubt. I, I'm, I'm not sure, have I, is there another question, Sinead, have I overlooked that? No, that, that's really, really helpful, Anne. Um, but yes, just that other piece about the actual and the data, collection data on the convictions and the numbers of convictions that have actually uh, gone through the legislation. Uh, no, that's another, yes, you're right, because um, in the first year of the legislation coming into force, I think there was only ever about 10 cases of stalking ever reported to the police in the past 10 years or the, the prior 10 years before I took forward the campaign, the first year the legislation came into force, there was over 400 um, police detections. Now, they've gone up and down over the years. Um, they've ranged from, they've dropped a bit this year, but then that's because they've taken stalking, ex-partner stalking under the new domestic abuse bill in Scotland. So what we are now registering are stranger and acquaintance stalking under the specific offence. And currently in 2019-20, that was 871, but they've been as high as 1,600. Now, the other challenge is that the crim recent criminal justice, Scottish Justice Survey, figures are saying 11.8% of victims reported being um, stalked in, within a 12-month period. That's, that's a high number. Um, equal between men and women. The trouble is men are not coming forward to report, so we're not quite sure what the incidences for men who are being stalked compared to women. And also, secondly, are these numbers accurate and how many are going under the Section 38 threatening and abusive behaviour? We suspect probably quite a lot, because sometimes it's what's easiest for the police. The Section 38 is going to be a much easier case to uh, a piece of legislation to file it under. Uh, it's not as high a test case as the Section 39. So... I would say even 10 years on, we're still in the stages of trying to get this sorted out. What we do know that police detection rates do not come anywhere near the, 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 the incidents or the prevalence reported in Scottish criminal justice surveys as yet. There is a huge gap. But we also know that only about 9% of victims are choosing to report to the police for a variety of reasons. So we don't actually have a base reference point. I think that's the summary of what I'm trying to say. We don't have a base re reference point for this crime. And that's why we've actually launched the Centre for Action Against Stalking. All the research on stalking comes from either Australia or America, most of it is out of date. So we've now um, gone into a joint partnership with the University West of Scotland, Scotland to drive forward uh, research to try and, and get a library of up-to-date empirical research so we can understand this crime and find out what is the landscape of stalking across the UK. I appreciate that, Anne, and that's revealing in itself, you know, and it is good to see that um, that centre, that piece, and also even the myths, because, you know, we're looking in this bill to um, encapsulate the online piece, and whilst it needs to be there, we also need to know um, 
I suppose, in the in the real world, you know, of stalking, how how prevalent is that? You know, it's understanding what what the behaviours do look like. Um, so any sort of updates on that would be most helpful. Um, but thank mm. you. That was genuinely very informative. Thank you. Thank you, Chair. Thank you. Thanks, Sinead. Thank you, Sinead. And if kind of Rachel Woods brought into the spotlight, thank you. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Anne, for that. And um, yeah. great work. Um, really, really good to see what you're, you're doing and your um, submission as well. It was very interesting. Um, a lot of what I would like to ask has already been covered, um, and you've explained it very well. But um, I suppose you'd mentioned about police treating incidents in isolation and um, uh, you know, and not as a course of conduct, which is obviously standing on the face of the legislation in terms of the prosecution. It would be two or more times. Um, but have you seen any improvements in that since the legislation has been implemented in Scotland? Very much so, because at one point um, in the early days, I was being inundated with victims asking for help and the police weren't recognising it. There was cases falling through the net. The police weren't believing them. We even had police knocking on victims or um, the, the accused store to tell them to behave themselves in escalating, um, which then triggered escalation against the victim. So we had a, a huge amount of um, unsafe practice out there and victims being badly disappointed. We don't get that many now because Police Scotland have been absolutely fabulous. Um, don't get me wrong, they still get those cases falling through the net. But we've developed a framework with the police, um, work very closely. If a victim comes to us where they feel the, case, the police have not recognised it or that something's happening that they're not happy with during the investigation of the police, the plea of the case, we can then actually trigger a response, a review of that case at a higher level. The, the agreement is, you know, and we can also do it with the Crown Office if the case has already been reported to the Procurator Fiscal. The agreement is we manage the victim and stabilise the victim, and we allow either the police or the Crown Office to review the case in whatever way they feel is necessary. That actually has been a win-win for all. It's been a fabulous framework. And it, it was actually all came through an invitation from the Crown Office in 2014, um, if I would work with them on helping with the, um, developing all the stocking work. And what, what then was a complete change of paradigm because through that piece of work, I was able to feed up victims' experiences, the bottom-up approach, which actually informed police and Crown Office all about this crime, the different behaviours, how it manifested, how victims experienced not just the crime and the system, but it also allowed the police to identify training needs across the country for different police divisions. So rather than the top-down approach, which it used to be, we then we started to develop this bottom-up approach, the victim's voice. That then led on to um, police in Scotland adopting a victim-centred approach to crime. And so through that, it's been educational, it's been formative, it's about how, 
How do they know that the money invested in time, systems, policies, legislative reforms has worked and whether that's been, that has worked consistently across the board? And the way they've managed to do that is to gain the information from the bottom-up approach from the victims. That, that's how it's worked. So through time, the police have um, done very well, actually. So we still get cases that fall through the net. Um, we always will do, but they're not hugely concerning any longer because by and large, the police are doing an excellent job. Great. Thank you. It's really good to hear. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, training um, and also a big fan of the bottom-up approach and getting the uh, victim's yeah. voice heard because um, it's affecting one person, it's probably affecting another as well. Um, Absolutely. You mentioned there about training and the police then identifying training needs. Um, just a very quick one. Do you know um, if there had been mandatory training for police in Scotland on this new offence? There's not been mandatory training. That never happened. But just through time, improvement in systems, um, police becoming more aware uh, that the you know of the stalking offence that they've actually done very well. The people who have been trained are the Crown Office. Now, what the Crown Office did was they developed a national training strategy for all Crown Office staff, procurator, fiscos. Um, so every procurator fisco in Scotland has had some training on stalking, but they also identified senior procurator fiscos in each office across Scotland, and they had to undergo the accredited training, which, which also required a pass, an exam at the end. So it is the senior procurator fiscos that have passed the accredited training that take responsibility for the stalking cases within each office in Scotland. They overview these cases. So, and we've also got the, the different federations for the Crown Office, so it's the bottom down. We've got the National League for Stalking, the Crown Office National League for Domestic Abuse and Stalking, and then we've got the different federations and then down to the, the offices. But in the Police Scotland, we also have the um, Domestic Abuse Task Force units that take on the stalking as well. So they've got their own um, specialised area um, that deal with the majority of the stalking cases. Yeah. Great. Um, big fan of mandatory training as well. Um, we uh, um, got, got that from yourself in Scotland for the, our domestic abuse bill. Um, it's spoken to some of the chief prosecutor in, uh, in Scotland and, and also women's aid and about, about training and the importance of training. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that I certainly would like to replicate in our bill, but I suppose just to, put, to, to, to square that off, would you be supportive of, of training of the criminal justice system within stalking legislation? Uh, if it's a new piece of legislation that actually changes the paradigm from the behaviours to the victim impact, then that does not fit into the old retrospective, par traditional paradigm of retrospective investigation. It's a completely new way of thinking about um, crime and having victims voice as the governing criteria of an offence is, is another paradigm that police aren't used to. So they've got to be trained um, 
in this type of crime because it was with the introduction of the offence of stalking that actually that triggered a new wave of legislative reforms within Scotland. It was the recognition of psychological harm and abuse and not the material uh, physical crime. So that changed the whole ball game, and it changed how we, how the the government viewed uh, victims as being um, as being the drivers of justice. And they recognised it wasn't the crime; it was the impact of the crime was more damaging than anything. So the whole paradigm has changed completely, and they do need training and education on that. Uh, Rachel, yeah. Three more. Um, I, I could probably talk to you all afternoon and I may be in touch with you after this, if that's okay. Um, but I just want to ask you finally, in terms, you've obviously been involved in this for a very long time, seen the um, Scottish legislation come through and, and it's being delivered now and implemented. Um, and I suppose what I want to ask, in terms of the main asks and the main needs from your perspective, have you seen that all delivered in Scotland? Um, is there anything that has been, hasn't been delivered that was promised or that you wanted? Um, and basically, um, you know, I suppose brings back to the chair's point um, at the first, you know, what can we learn uh, and can we, can we do things, um, can, we, can we learn from Scot Scotland um, and what has and hasn't been done, but specifically if there's anything that hasn't been done that we should consider? No, I don't think so. I, th I think what, we're, what we've done with the stalking legislation is lead the way. Um, I think it, because it is, it's actually triggered what happened with the stalking um, offence was that the, the criminal justice system was never designed to accommodate victims. It's criminal focus. It created a pathway for, for those accused um, and offenders and their, you know, their, their rights, the right to a fair trial, et cetera, et cetera. And I always knew that a way back when the offence of stalking was being introduced into criminal law, that actually how this piece of legislation was designed was never going to fit into the existing, our existing justice system, because it was never designed to accommodate victims per se. But what has happened, it's triggered the Scottish Government to look at the criminal justice system and to, for so there's, it's been under great reforms for a few years now, but we've got to make justice work for victims and not just for offenders as well. And we've got to bring this justice system into the 21st century where it belongs. You know, society has changed, crimes are changed, the nature of crimes changing, we've got cybercrime, we are breaking down uh, national and international boundaries. Now, I'm working with the European um, Commission just now and looking at stalking being embedded within the uh, victims um, for the G European Gender uh, Equality Strategy. Um, so we're looking at that as well and where stalking fits in with that. And I, I'm hearing that the Council of Europe are now considering looking at an EU-wide definition of stalking uh, at some point. And we've been pushing forward for uh, the harmonisation of stalking across the UK and Northern Ireland, Wales, because what's happening with the, the cyber stalking 
you know, we're get, we get victims from Poland, we get them from America, we get them from everywhere across the world, cyber-stalking, cyber-stalking. And there's no point having one piece of legislation in one country and a different piece of legislation in a different country, because all that's doing is creating loopholes. So somewhere along the line, I do think we've got to harmonise on this work and have standards of service for all victims of stalking, regardless of where they live or what country they reside in. Because if we have a victim in Scotland, we want to make sure they have the same standards of service if they move to Northern Ireland. But equally, if our legislation in Scotland is such and a perpetrator disappears off to Northern Ireland, we want to know that um, the same sanction, legal sanctions are going to be enforced and they won't fall through a variation in the piece of legislation. So we're very much for the harmonisation of stalking laws and share practices for that reason. Did that answer that question or did I avoid it? Um, I'll say I'll probably be in touch with you after. So thank you so much for your answers today. Thank you, Chair. Thank you, Rachel. Thanks, Rachel. And can I thank you, because that has been really helpful. You have a, a great expertise, and that came through during the, the, the course of this evidence session. So really do appreciate you giving up your time to, to spend with the Justice Committee, uh, Committee today. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye, Chair. OK, members. Let's move on then to item 9, which is just an update on oral evidence sessions for this Protection on Stalking Bill at our meeting. On the 29th of April, the committee agreed to schedule 11 oral evidence sections with a range of organisations uh, on the protection from stalking bill, following which consideration would be given to whether any further sessions are required. So uh, the session that has just taken place with Anne um, completes the oral evidence um, unless members wish to propose hearing from any other organisations. So if members are content um, with the oral evidence that we have received, then we, we can just note that. Um, and we've received a lot of very good oral evidence sessions during the course of it. So what we're going to do on the back of this is, if members are agreeable, we'll send a summary of the issues that have been raised throughout all of the evidence sessions, um, either through the written submissions or indeed during the oral evidence sessions. We'll be sending that now to the department for a written response, following which arrangements will then be made for officials to come and to give evidence uh, to this committee, uh, and we'll be able to, to pick things up from there if members are agreeable. Okay, okay. thank you. Um, just advise members then the format to hear the direct experience of individuals who have suffered uh, from stalking behaviour and their views on the bill, similar to the approach that we adopted on the domestic abuse bill, has been outlined in paragraph 9 of the clerk's memo. It's proposed that we would approach individuals that have responded to the call for evidence on women's aid, the La Dolce Vida and Women's Policy Group, to facilitate identification of individuals that are willing um, to meet with members. So, members, if you're content with the proposed format to hear from uh, individuals informally in the same way we've done for the domestic abuse uh, bill, uh, and also that individuals who responded to the call of evidence then are approached and the organisations listed are also asked to facilitate identifying some other members, then we can proceed to organise that if members are agreeable. Okay, agreed. Um, 
the Women's Policy Group highlighted that some of the more unique forms of abuse suffered by different minority groups and has recommended the committee should engage with groups that support victims of honour-based abuse, including stalking. So if members are agreed for such groups to be approached regarding holding an informal meeting with the committee, we will seek to do that. Members are agreed. Okay. Item 10. Then is the uh, Criminal Justice Committal Reform Bill, the consideration and approval of the draft committee uh, report. The report needs to be approved at our meeting today as the committee stage for the bill ends tomorrow. The draft report was provided at the meeting last week. Members were asked to submit any proposed amendments to the clerk. No amendments have been received. The executive summary section of the report is at pages 10 to 22 of the table pack. Any typographical or formatting errors in the report will be amended at the proofing stage before circulation to Assembly members and publication on the committee web page. So, members, given that there was uh, no amendments, that's a, a credit to the staff for um, doing a good job on that front. Then um, I'm going to go through the, the formal agreement of the report, um, which you're now familiar with, um, but it'll just take a few minutes to do that. So. Uh, if members are content, then we'll proceed now to, to formally agree the contents within this report. So if I can refer members just at this stage to the title page, committee membership and the powers page, table of contents page and list of abbreviations page of the report. And I'll now put the question. Are members content that the title page, committee membership and powers page, table of contents page and list of abbreviations page stand part of the report? Agreed? Agreed. Okay, thank you. Um, now, just the introduction section. Are members content that the introduction section of paragraphs 1 to 20 stand part of the report? Members agreed. Agreed. The consideration of the bill provisions section. Are members content that the consideration of the bill provisions section of paragraphs 21 through to 164 stand part of the report? Members agreed. Agreed. The other issues that are raised in the bill. Uh, are members content that the other issues raised in the consideration of the bill section of paragraphs 165 to 187 stand part of the report? Agreed. <coughs> uh, and the clause by clause consideration, um, if I can just put that question, are members content that the clause by clause consideration of the bill section of the report stand part of the report? Members are agreed. Agreed. Okay, thank you. The appendices. Uh, are, are members content that the appendices stand part of the report? Agreed. And the executive summary. Are members content that the executive summary stands part of the report? Agreed. Okay, thank you. Uh, if members are agreed, then for the report to be published on the committee webpage, and we will then issue to all members and the Minister for Justice members are agreed to that. Agreed. Um, and if members are agreed, um, I'll seek to clear the draft minutes of this meeting for inclusion in Appendix 1 to enable the report to be finalised. The draft minutes will be replaced by the final version of the minutes once that has been agreed by uh, the committee, if members are content with that. Okay, thank you. And if members are agreed, um, we'll issue an electronic copy of the bill report to all of the organisations and individuals who provided evidence to the committee on the bill, if members are agreed. Okay. Well, that concludes the formal um, consideration of the report, and um, that's the second uh, report that this committee has completed so far in this um, past 12 months. And I just want to pass on my appreciation to um, Christine and Cathy, the whole team in the Justice Committee, for the work that they have done. And this has been a very 
straightforward uh, piece of work for the committee, but that's only because of the excellent staff that we have that um, provide us with all of the support um, that we need. <coughs> and can I also thank the Department for Justice um, for their assistance and also the wider Assembly staff uh, as well. So, members, that concludes the consideration process for this committee for the Criminal Justice Committal Reform Bill. And we move on to the next item on the agenda. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the Committee for Finance members has written to this committee and the Committee for Communities regarding a forthcoming LCM for the Public Services Pensions and Judicial Offices Bill, which gives effect to changes in public sector pensions in line with the McLeod judgment. The bill is also expected to make other provisions in relation to judicial pension schemes, including increasing the mandatory retirement age from 70 to 75 and policy and payment of allowances for judges sitting in retirement. The Department of Justice undertook two consultations on the McLeod judgment and reform of judicial pensions and on the mandatory retirement age. At the meeting on the 25th of March, the committee considered written briefing papers on the outcome and legislative next steps for both consultations in which the Department suggested that the most appropriate route to make the legislative changes would be by Westminster legislation subject to the legislative consent of the Assembly. The committee agreed that it was content in principle with the proposal to proceed with legislative changes by way of an LCM subject to site of the relevant Westminster legislation. It is proposed that the changes will be taken forward in the Public Services Pensions and Judicial Offices Bill, uh, which it is anticipated uh, will be introduced at Westminster before its summer recess, along with other changes to public sector uh, pensions. So, members, it's whether we're content to note the information that's been provided to the Committee for Finance, unless there's further clarity that is needed. If not, we then note it. Okay. Uh, item 12. Uh, at our meeting on the 13th of May, the Committee considered a proposal for a statutory rule under Article 47 of the County Courts Order 1980, which is subject to the negative resolution procedure. Um, this rule has two purposes. It allows for judgment to be obtained by a plaintiff on a summary basis for all or part of a claim after a notice of intention to defend has been lodged, which the County Court Rules Committee considers would help to speed up proceedings. Currently, there is no procedure for obtaining a summary judgment if a notice of intention to defend is lodged. It will also provide for costs in respect of the application and hearing. Secondly, it will make provision for provisional damages mirroring as appropriate the rules which apply in the High Court. Provisional damages are damages for existing injuries with the right of return to court to apply for further damages if serious deterioration is suffered in the future as a result of the original injury. Um, the Committee agreed to request details of the outcome of the targeted consultation that was undertaken by the County Court Rules Committee on the proposal for this rule and how any issues raised had been addressed. The Department has responded, indicating that no substantive issues were raised and the minor technical matters of process raised by one consultee will be taken into account when making the proposed statutory rule. So, members, if we are um, content with the proposal for the statutory rule, um, it will come to the Committee for formal agreement on, unless there is further clarity that is needed. Members content then, and it will come forward then for formal approval in due course. Item 13. Uh, the Magistrate Courts Rules Committee is proposing to make a statutory rule subject to the negative resolution procedure to reinsert provisions in the Magistrate Courts Rules that support the procedure for maintenance applications under the Laguna Convention, such as 
recognition and enforcement of maintenance orders, which were omitted in court rule amendments made when the UK left the Convention on its withdrawal from the EU. Uh, the UK has applied to rejoin the Laguna Convention in its own right and is awaiting the outcome of the application, which must be unanimously accepted by existing contracting parties. It is proposed that the amendments only come into operation if the UK's application to rejoin is successful. So again, members, if we are content with this proposed statutory rule um, and obviously deal with it in due course when it comes forward, unless there is any more information needed. We will um, note it for now. And yeah, okay. Sorry, um, Sinead Bradley. Thank you, Chair. No, it, it, it just struck me as a bit odd um, in terms of the process here. You know that the statutory rule will come in front of us while the application is still unknown. I suppose there's no the, there's no precedent of how it should be done. But um, just wanted to note that. I just thought it a bit strange. Thank you. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. Um, we will tease it out with the department to find out when we'll actually get this, given the application to, to rejoin and when would that actually happen and so on. So um, let, let's seek to find that information out. Okay. Um, next item on the agenda, the Crown Court Rules Committee is proposing to make a statutory rule, again it is subject to the negative resolution um, procedure, to reinsert provisions in the Crown Court rules in respect of referrals to the Court of Justice of the European Union, which were omitted in amendments made in preparation for withdrawal from the EU. While the Department has indicated that these are required for certain limited circumstances, no information has been provided on what those circumstances may be. So, members, we will request further information on these limited circumstances that are referred to under which the Crown Court may make referrals to the Court of Justice of the European Union, if members are content with that. Um, item 15. The Court of Ju I, know, I think that's from last time. Your wee hands just still optioned. I assume that's from the previous item. Thank you. Um, the Court of Judicature Rules Committee is proposing to make a statutory rule again at subject to negative resolution procedures. It has two purposes. First is to reinsert provisions in the Court of Judicature Rules that govern the practice and procedure in the High Court and the Court of Appeals supporting procedure for applications under this uh, Laguna Convention on Jurisdiction and the Recognition and Enforcement of Judgments in Civil and Commercial Matters, which were omitted in Court Rule Amendments made when the UK left the Convention on its withdrawal from the EU. Second is to reinsert provisions in the court rules in respect of referrals to the Court of Justice of the EU, which were omitted in amendments made again in preparing for withdrawal from the EU. And the Department has indicated that these are required for certain limited circumstances, but no detail has been provided. So we will uh, request that further information um, for the committee's benefit, unless there's further information needed. We will pursue that. Um, item 16. Obviously, the, the department's been busy on court rules. The county court rules committee is proposing another statutory rule subject to negative resolution, and um, making the same changes to the rules that govern the practice and procedure in county courts that have just been outlined for those rules governing the practice and procedure in the high court and the court of appeal. So we will ask again for further information as to what these limited circumstances are. Item 17. Um, at our meeting on the 19th of November, the committee agreed that we were content with the proposal for the statutory rule 
which is subject to negative resolution to amend Rule 22 of the Parole Commissioner's Rules 2009, introducing provisions which allow registered victims or other parties to receive summaries of parole decisions. The Department has now provided an update on the proposed rule, which indicates that the original um, proposed amendment considered by the Committee required members of the public to set out why it was in the public interest that they receive a summary of reasons. Following further consideration of the matter, the Department has removed the requirement on members of the public to justify receipt of a summary of reasons on public interest grounds. The adjust, judge, the, uh, this adjustment recognises that the requirement was not aligned to the commitment to the principle of open justice and the presumption will now be in favour of release of information. The Chief Commissioner has confirmed that he is content with this proposed amendment. The Department has also advised that it has delayed finalising the proposed statutory rule, taking account of any relevant developments and two ongoing legal challenges relevant to Rule uh, 22, but is now confident that the key grounds for challenge will not impact on the rationale for or scope of the proposed amendment, and it will address a number of the concerns set out uh, by the cases. So members are just asked at this stage that we note this update, the reasons for delay in laying this rule, and um, advise them that unless we require any further information or clarity um, or wish to uh, raise any issues, then we will formally consider this statutory rule when it's laid and the report of the examiner of staff rules is available. Um, Rachel Woods. Thank you, Chair. No, I'm content with the with with what the rationale and so on, but I'm just wondering if there's been any engagement with the stakeholders previously in the um, the pack that we've been given. There had been engagement with key stakeholders listed: the commissioners, um, role commissioners, law society, bar library, probation board, and the prison service. But there isn't any um details if that has happened with this new rule or the, the slight change and also with victim support as well if they are content with the with the new sort of focus on this and the, the slight amendment um if they've been informed even of the proposed change that the department are going down uh, and I also just have a question with regard to the two legal challenges that are ongoing. Um, and it says that the department is confident, but what you know are, are, are those outcomes expected soon? And if there is going, if the outcomes of that those legal challenges don't um, don't match up, what what scope is there for amendment or or review of what we have agreed to? Okay, we can ask that. Okay, so we'll follow up on that and bring back a response to the committee. Um, item 18, the, at our meeting on the 18th of March, the committee considered correspondence from the Minister of Justice advising that she had received a request from the Economic Secretary to the Treasury on the 8th of February to consider legislative consent for a clause in the Financial Services Bill. The purpose of the clause was to ensure that law enforcement is able to quickly and efficiently freeze and forfeit the proceeds of crime and terrorist property, not just held in bank building society accounts, but also when in electronic money and payment institution accounts. Uh, the Minister had indicated to the Economic Secretary to the Treasurer uh, that it would not be feasible for an LCM to proceed within this short time scale allowed, and the UK Government therefore tabled an amendment to the Bill so that the provision does not extend um, to Northern Ireland. The Minister subsequently laid a memorandum in the Assembly on the 26th of March in accordance with the relevant standing rule explaining why the LCM was not being sought, and that was noted by the Committee. At our meeting on the 18th of March, the committee agreed to request info from the department on potential consequences 
of not being included in the provisions and clarity of whether cryptocurrency is uh, covered by this provision, and requesting info from the police board on implications for the powers of the police and risks associated with the provisions not extending uh, to Northern Ireland. The committee then uh, noted the response from the department at our meeting on the 22nd of April. We agreed to consider it further when responses from the policing board was available. Police board response has been received. It's based on the assumption that the Criminal Finances Act of 2017 provisions are commenced on schedule at the end of this June. It highlights other police forces are able to act in a quicker and more resource-efficient manner than the PSNI, and it is likely that similar investigations regarding funds by similar suspects, one resident in Northern Ireland and one resident in England, would be treated very differently, with the Northern Ireland investigation taking longer and using much greater resources. The Department's response indicates that the preferred option to extend the electronic money institutions clause is by way of an LCM. The Minister has written to the Home Secretary to ask for a suitable vehicle to be identified for this. The Department has also advised that cryptocurrency is not subject to this provision, and freezing and forfeiture of powers in this respect come under the Proceeds of Crime Act 202, um, 2002 sorry, civil forfeiture regime. So if members are agreed, we're going to forward the response from the Police Board to the Department of Justice for their comment on the issues raised and request an update on its engagement with the Home Office to see if they have identified this suitable legislative vehicle to extend these relevant provisions to the UK Financial Services Bill to Northern Ireland, if members are content with that approach. Um, Rachel, is that hand from before? Okay, no problem. Thank you. Item 19. At our meeting on the 6th of May, the committee considered the Year 6 Action Plan for the Stopping Domestic and Sexual Violence and Abuse seven-year strategy, which sets out the programme of work to be delivered during 2021-22, and a progress report against the Year 5 Action Plan. The committee agreed to request further information on the position regarding delivery of all the actions contained in the Year 5 Action Plan, for which the Department and justice organisations were responsible. And if any were not completed, the reasons for this and whether they were carried forward to the Year 6 Action Plan. The Department has provided the further information requested and indicated that it intends to monitor those actions that have not been carried forward into the Year 6 Action Plan to ensure that they are completed. The Department intends to provide an update on delivery and uh, of the criminal justice elements of the Year 6 Action Plan at the end of uh, October of this year. So members have just asked that we note uh, this current position regarding the Action Plan. Unless there's further points to be made, we will duly note it and get a further update in due course. Item 20 then is correspondence. I'm just going to draw attention to uh, one item. Um, there's a response from the Department providing further information requested by the Committee on progress to implement the recommendations in the Northern Ireland Audit Office Report on Mental Health and the Criminal Justice System. That response covers the development of a dashboard or indicators to support monitoring of outcomes for offenders with mental health issues, the current position regarding the introduction of a drugs recovery unit at McGabry, and the likely impact of the current budgetary constraints on programmes. So if members are agreed, we will request an update on progress to address the report's recommendations in six months' time. Are members content then that we action the remaining items of correspondence as set out in the cover sheet? Agreed. Okay. Um, Chair's business. There's been a response received from the Chairman uh, Liaison Group indicating that it considered the correspondence um, that I had sent in respect of the Chairs of the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee meeting with the Chairs of these, our Committee um, in terms of the scrutiny of the Northern Ireland Protocol at its meeting on the 27th of May. Chair, uh, that uh, Chairman Liaison Group just noted that correspondence. There is a further invite to the next meeting, which is provisionally scheduled for either Tuesday the 6th or Wednesday the 7th of July. So, members, I leave it for the, the committee 
to decide what it wants to do on this in due course. I've highlighted my position on it. Um, that that forum with the Northern Ireland Affairs uh, Select Committee Chairman that discusses protocol-related issues um, certainly, from what I can see, just ends up talking about protocol-related issues in a very political way as opposed to the committee's uh, chairs representing committee positions on it. So the Economy Committee has taken a view now that it will only deal by way of written correspondence if there are issues that relate to the Economy Committee. Um, ultimately, it will be a matter for the Justice Committee um, and, and what way you would like um, the committee to proceed in terms of its engagement with that forum. But um, I'll leave that for somebody else's problem to, to navigate due course. Uh, is there any other business? If there's no. Sorry, yep, Sinead Bradley. Sorry, Chair. Um, I had hoped there might have been a, a bit of business under Chairman's business that hasn't been mentioned. Um, and, and I know um, there have been proposals of elevations and there may be changes to committee structures. Um, and I'm not privy to the timeline, but I hope for everybody's sake that they're swift, to be quite honest and smooth. And if that is the case, I want to wish yourself and Paul Frew both very well. Going forward, and and I have to, and I'll mention again Gordon because it was um, quite sad to hear the news of uh, Gordon's ill health. I wish Gordon well, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, I may be premature in this, and we will see you again next week. But just in case, you know, it's Northern Ireland. It either goes really fast or not at all. So I'm putting it on record to you both, and uh, to wish you both well. Thank you. All right, thank you, Sinead. Um, hopefully, it'll hopefully it'll go really well, and hopefully, the executive will run like this committee, which has been very productive and smooth. Um, Rachel Woods. Thank you, Chair. If you do say so yourself. Um, <laughs> no, not that I would uh, want rid of yourself or Mr. Free, but I do wish you both all the best in your new roles. Um, Certainly, you've made this um, my first committee experience extremely interesting and easy, um, and I feel like I've been able to um, speak to you both um, about a number of issues and work um, work on a number of issues with you yourselves as well. And certainly, look forward to challenging you on the floor of the house now instead of um, instead of at the committee. So, um, certainly, I wish you do wish you all the best. Thank you, thank you, Rachel. That's very much appreciated in terms of your comments. So, Gemma Dolan. Yeah, thanks, Chair. I just want to echo what Sinead and uh, Rachel have said, just to wish you and Paul both the very best. I've worked with Paul on the Finance Committee and this committee, so I look forward to working with him when he's Economy Minister as well. So, all the best and thanks a million. All right. No, thank you, Gemma. And I know. Paul's, Paul's listening to that too, so I, I know. Yeah, can I come in there, Chair? I don't have a I don't have a hand to wave because yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but can I come in? Can I just say it's been a, an absolute pleasure to serve on the Justice Committee again. Uh, it's a, a committee that I really enjoy and I really love. Uh, the topics we discuss uh, are exceptional and really important to society and. Uh, I wish I wish the Justice Committee all the best in the future, and um, just to say, keep up the good work. Uh, we have a critical role as a committee uh, to make sure we hold the departments to account, and also to make sure any legislation comes through is the best that it can be. Uh, so, thank you for your uh, friendship. Thank you for your work uh, alongside us over the the last 
number of months. It's been really, really good. And Gemma has got a double delight because she's losing me out of uh, two committees. So she's really getting her head charred. Uh, but it's it's been a pleasure to work with you all and uh, certainly seek us out in our new roles and we'll try our best. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Paul. Okay, members, um, thank you. Well, listen, the next scheduled meeting of the Justice Committee is uh, next week at 2 o'clock and it will be in room 30 and also via the Starleaf facility. So thank you. Thanks, members. Meeting adjourned. It is the Northern Ireland Assembly, Senate Chamber, Programme Sound.